Airline Pilot Guy, episode 349. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters. Today's show was recorded on the 14th of November, 2018. In today's episode, we have an ERJ-190 out of control. What happened last week at the Las Vegas Tower? More news, your feedback, and this week's plane tale, gone for a Burton. So, get all settled in. Tray tables and CPACs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 349 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we cover aviation news and your great feedback. And here with me this week to help me in that endeavor is from her lakeside studio in South Carolina. She's a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. Glad to be back with you for another wonderful episode of this great podcast. Looking forward to it. Some good things to discuss this week. All right. And also joining us from his recording studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Well, hi there, Jeff. And hi there, Steph, in the background. You know, it's halfway through November already. Where is the year going? Wasn't it just January? Pretty sure. Yeah. I know. It's amazing how the time flies. <sighs> well, thank you, uh, Kevski uh, in uh, Norway for that uh, music that we always play for Captain Nick's introduction and also the uh, ER Dr. Steph theme by the one and only Neville Bounds. We do appreciate that. And uh, just don't say that enough, how much we appreciate um, all of your support, whether it be creatively, like people sending in audio for us or feedback or financial support, which we'll talk about in a bit. Thank you one and all. So how is everybody doing this week? Meh, can't complain. Yeah. Well, you yeah, can. Awful. Thanks. Okay. Say awful? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. All right. Well, well, it was trying to get home from America. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, yeah, why don't we, uh, I'm sure you'll say something about that here um, when we catch up with, well, let's just go right into it. Captain Nick, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, I was recently out in uh, um, New York at Newark and I had a lovely day uh, with Radio Roger, a bit more of that to come. Uh, and uh, we pitched up back at the airport, and uh, the damned airplane was broken. So for those of you who are Patreons, uh, I've done a fairly long crew log, which uh, explains all the technical and fascinating details of 
how uh, and what happens when your airplane won't work. Uh, suffice to say, we couldn't get it going, so um, we retired back to the hotel and had another go the next night. Very nicely, the company didn't give me the same airplane. They flew a fresh one out, and some other poor sucker had to fly my broken machine home. So I got home a day late. So that's all crammed everything up a little bit. I was a bit short of time to get the plane tail done and everything else done. But uh, there you go. A day, a day late and a dollar short. Exactly. As we like to say. Yes. Or a pound short. Is that what you say in, uh, over there? No, no. We, we, we don't have that expression. Oh, okay. Probably best that you don't. Yeah. Uh, so did you say Radio, Radio Roger? I'm Radio Roger, and you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. Thank you, uh, Radio that's, Roger. That's the very that. chap. He, what is, he, is he in the toilet with that? <laughs> yeah, he's... Thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I had a, had a great time uh, with him, seeing him do his job as a professional anchorman. Well, it's just a shame that you uh, didn't do any kind of a special audio recording to reflect that visit to uh, his place of work. Well, I have a feeling the spy in the cab might have done it for me. Oh, well, let's see if I can find something here. Oh, look at this. I found an audio file. Should I play it? Oh, go on then. Fifteen minutes past the hour, live from America's news headquarters. I'm Roger Stern. Here's what's happening. President Trump is in Paris meeting with French President Emmanuel Macron. And there are tensions over how much Europe... For APG News, this is Nick Anderson. I'm here in the studio interviewing the amazing anchorman, Roger Stern. Roger, it's great to be talking to you, and thank you very much indeed for talking to our APG audience. It's great to be talking to them. Um, I hope I can sound coherent. Uh, doing an hour at a time, it sort of exhausts you. It's a little bit like working on an assembly line, keeping the news moving. We... Uh, we broadcast over Sirius XM satellite and uh, do all news 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And uh, anchors here have one hour on, one hour off. And during that off hour, they get to catch their breath and uh, prepare for the next newscast and uh, keep it fresh and updated as events uh, as events take place. And uh, tell me, of course, you're uh, an APG listener and have been for for many years uh with your fantastic setup and i'm so impressed with the professionalism that you display on air and the gear um have you got any hints for captain jeff you know i have to tell you i think captain jeff is a real natural i mean he sounds conversational he is a great communicator no i don't i mean i would th he's really very smooth on the air and is himself which is the most important thing to do and uh, uh what jeff does is terrific and I know he has a new, you know, set of music, and he uses it well. So no, I really don't. We think uh, Jeff should come up and visit you and get a few pointers. I, I'd be happy to host him. I'm not sure I, what I tell him to do. Um, he seems to have figured that out very well on his own. I must admit, though, uh, looking at the gear you have in your studio here, I don't think he'd be able to fly uh, around uh, the country and broadcast from hotels if he had to carry this. In fact, I'm not sure the Mad Dog would even get airborne with all this gear. There is a lot. I mean, there are several computers here. Uh, we have one computer that handles the formats going into commercials, playing what we call the jingles or the sounders, another computer playing the pieces of sound we have in the newscast, you know, excerpts of people like President Trump or reporters. So it's a, it's a pretty, pretty big, sophisticated operation. 
It is, and uh, I'm so impressed with the way you handle it. I mean, uh, you must have been doing this for years. Yeah, and a lot of, when you go to a different station and learn a different format, it's really muscle memory. It's a lot like flying. I mean, you just have to sort of do it and learn it. I mean, the big difference is if I make a mistake, uh, no one is in danger. I mean, you might have a few seconds of dead air, but everyone survives. And But dead air is dreadful, is it? It is. But uh, th that's the other difference. We have to make decisions very quickly. Um, I guess you in flying, uh, your decision time is a little more elongated. In most cases, you can take 10, 20, 30 seconds to make a decision. Well, yeah, I have to say, my father always asked me uh, a, a trick question. He said, if you have an engine failure, what's the first thing you do? And I'd dream up all these actions. And he said, no, the first thing you do is sit back and light a cigarette. Uh, which was really his way of saying you don't rush into things because that's the way you make mistakes. And there have been a number of accidents where people have not really thought it out and not spent time evaluating their situation. I know that because I listened to the APG. <laughs> exactly. Brilliant. Now, of course, not all your time is here in the studio. In fact, a lot of it is out doing field reporting around New York. That must be exciting. That's what I like best. Um, this is very much like being a ringmaster or you know, working on an assembly line and being on top of a lot of stories, which is not my strong suit. I like to be able to focus on one story at a time, talk to people, gather what we call sound, and really kind of craft it. Uh, here, there's a whole team and a wonderful team that does this, but I like very much being in control of the whole product, and I can do that more when I'm in the field. Which is very much uh, sort of in your car with laptops and microphones and meeting people on the street and trying to do it all, a one-man band. Exactly. I mean, the equipment is not particularly different from what a lot of people have. I have a laptop. I have a microphone with a digital recorder. We have some apps that allow us to go live over the cellular data network. But other than that, it's very much off-the-shelf equipment. And yeah, I'm a one-man band. I have a board that fits over my steering wheel that creates a little desk. I put my laptop on it, and I just sort of huddle down in the car. And uh, after I've talked to people or covered press conferences, I just sort of start banging it out on my laptop. That's brilliant. Now, just thinking back over the last few years, your huge career as a, as a reporter um, and a journalist. Uh, what's the story that you always look back on and think that was brilliant? I, I did a really good job doing that, and that was a fascinating uh, story to tell. Earlier in my career, I was in a position where I could really focus on beats. A lot of what I do now is general assignment reporting. So it was covering politics on Long Island, uh, covering the fight over a nuclear plant that was eventually closed. And I liked that because I could really sink my teeth into a story and cover it day after day after day where I really knew the story. A lot of what I do now is arrive at things, covering stories for the first time, and there's a real premium on being able to figure things out quickly. And I like that challenge. But I kind of miss being able to cover something regularly and really know it backwards and forwards. Well, that's fantastic. By the way, I must say, I love your voice. When you're uh, on air, uh, you have such a precise and uh, imposing delivery. I think it's fantastic. I wish I could sound like that in normal life. <laughs> <laughs> I bet we all do. Okay, brilliant, Roger. Look, thanks very much indeed. I'm going to uh, hand this back to uh, Jeff uh, on the APG. Been great chatting to you. Oh. <laughs> Oops. What was I well, saying? <laughs> Are you talking about professional journalism? Oh, yeah, 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 just before uh, that happened. Yeah. Great okay. chatting to you, and thank you very much indeed for inviting me up to your studio. You're quite welcome. It's a pleasure having you. Thanks.
Well, fix it in post. Nothing to hear there. <laughs> Despite the little hiccup, I, I which I happened there. Roger's going to be giggling about that, I'm sure. Well, um, it's not going to be in the audio only version, that's for sure. So now you should start talking as if it never happened. Okay. Well, well that's fantastic. That never happened, Jeff. Um, <laughs> You're not helping at all. No, I'm not. Anyway, look, that that was fantastic uh, meeting Roger. Uh, he it really is a lovely setup there. The people there were very friendly and uh, just I, I uh, was drooling at the quality of his uh, audio equipment. Uh, I nearly just said equipment there, but uh, I'm glad I put the audio bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly thank you for, right. For clarifying uh, that, <laughs> and uh, he was uh, he was writing copy uh, right in front of me, and then rushing off to a little side uh, uh, booth to uh, record pieces for someone else to put into their bulletins, and uh, he only had like 60 minutes, uh, having come off the air to prepare uh, the next hour's news, which he did with uh, producers and people around. But it was it was pretty nonstop, and it's, uh, it's it all looked very slick, but I can just see how testing it is to be able to do that kind of audio work in the professional environment. So thank you very much, uh, Roger. It was a delight to get to see you at work. Yes, and thanks for recording this copy. I'm Radio Roger, and you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. We're going to use that a lot. <laughs> yeah. Do appreciate Brilliant. that. Brilliant. Brilliant. Great guy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I do want to uh, have a tour uh, of his facility <laughs> as well. His, his, his audio studio, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. That'll be a lot of fun. And then, yeah, I'll, I'll take as many tips as I can get. For, oh, that's not good either. I should have said that. Anyway, <laughs> um, Steph, <laughs> what, what have you been up to? Well, first, I'll just say to, to Roger, because I'm sure he's listening, but Jeff was, uh, you did make him blush a little bit with the uh, <laughs> the high praise and compliments. So that was that was fun to see and very well-deserved uh, compliments, I should say. Wow. Um, I'm doing great. Not, not much going on here. Had a kind of a quiet, relaxing weekend. Um, just kind of recovering from recent travel. And uh, I guess as much as I hate to even say it, get ready for the holidays. Not that I've done anything to get ready for it, but uh, kind of in denial that next week is Thanksgiving and then, gosh, probably just straight into Christmas stuff. Mentally and emotionally prepared. That's a big part of yeah, it. Yeah, right? I need a whole week to, you know, work on that before we get into the holiday season. I've not heard any Christmas music yet, which is a good thing. Ugh, you're lucky. Oh, you have, I guess. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, not by choice, fortunately. I mean, no, I think yeah. Christmas music is great on Christmas Day. I like it, you know, I like it throughout the Christmas season, which is actually just starts on Christmas Day. But don't get me started with that. Okay. Uh, so, all right. Um, any any meetups or any audio files for me to play or anything like that? For, I got nothing. For okay. Got nothing. Now, just a reminder of uh, the 27th of this month uh, at the Circus Brewery. Uh, in Berlin. I know uh, we're going to have some of our German listeners uh, there, which is going to be fantastic. So looks like it'll be a great evening. I wish I could be there. Oh, so, great. Uh, uh, you guys are going to have we, a ton of fun. The yeah, beers are we, we will. Oh, thank you. Uh, we may even get Fred there. I don't know. Might happen. You know, Fred, like man of mystery. That wouldn't be any surprise, would it? <laughs> no, really? <laughs> He's like a bad penny, but a very nice bad penny. <laughs> It keeps turning up. <laughs> oh, boy. 
Well, um, yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun, I can tell. Um, so for me, um, last Thursday, I guess the day after we did the recording, I uh, managed to get myself over to the um, Atlanta Control Tower for an Atlanta Tower tour. And uh, that was a lot of fun, very informative. I almost didn't make it in time um, because of not accounting on accounting for the traffic at that time of morning. I thought it wouldn't be so bad, um, you know, getting close to lunchtime. And then, of course, you know, missing the train that I should have gotten. And then the train that I was on, of course, had some mechanical troubles again. And that only happens when you're, you know, running late. And uh, then I had to go from one end of the airport to the other end of the airport because the uh, control tower is on the uh, near the international terminal. But uh, I was I managed to make it and uh, enjoyed the tour. We were there from 12 to three o'clock and uh, had a lot of questions answered from pilots. Uh, there were probably a group of about 25, maybe 30, but maybe 20 to 25 as best I can recollect of a of us uh, acme pilots there and uh, we went up into the control tower cab itself after we had a briefing from uh, three of the controllers senior controllers and i was amazed at how you know this is the world's busiest airport and this tower is the third tallest in the world uh, second to a couple in asia and then uh, atlanta towers number three and then I think there are two other towers in the top 10 in the U.S., uh, Indianapolis well, and Orlando, I think. I was listening to your uh, your crew log about it, and uh, not to brag about size or anything, but there's a new uh, <laughs> control tower being built here in Charlotte, and I think it'll be the second tallest in the U.S. once oh, it's completed. Okay. Yeah, I believe behind 300, Atlanta. 392 feet, I think, is the Atlanta tower height. And uh, so when you get up there, and you start looking out the window and you look, you know, and then you kind of look over, over the edge of the windows, looking down, you're going, wow, this really is way up. And then when you look at the whole layout of the international airport and you can see every inch of the, uh, of the airport, all the runway surfaces and everything else. And it, you know, encompasses quite a large geographic area. Uh, that was impressive. But the odd thing about it is because you're up there 31 stories high, when you're watching airplanes take off and taxi around it looks like they're models it doesn't even look like they're real to, you know it just has that sensation that this is not real um this is not really and then the control it's very quiet up there i mean i was thinking that it was going to be noisy and i could hear people you know shouting commands to all the pilots and stuff in there and it was like you can't hear it it's like you can hear a pin drop they're wearing these little microphones you know that um, or, you know, they have a little earpiece and then a little tiny microphone off the side of their mouth. And then they're just speaking in normal conversation, conversational volume. And unless you get up like within a couple of feet of them, then you can, you know, finally hear them talking. Well, and, that's so odd, Jeff, because every time I speak to an American air traffic controller, he screams at me. Well, must that be might be good microphones. <laughs> <laughs> I think that might be just you, Nick. I don't oh, know. Could be. I'm thinking, could be, uh, I suppose. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> anyway, I really enjoyed the tour. Um, again, um, it was a, I made it a crew log for those who are part of our Coffee Fund cadre. So uh, that's one of the benefits, the perks of uh, financially supporting the show. And uh, so if you do join us in the Coffee Fund cadre, please check out my 
tour of the Atlanta Tower. And, uh, oh, hey, you know, we have feedback, so we have an email box or email address, but we also have snail mail, and um, I received, I don't know if you guys can see my pictures there, I had to put it in a separate note uh, under snail mail, but uh, I have the, um, the item right behind me, I believe, hang on. So I got an email from David Shore, and he said that he was disappointed that I called in sick for my trip because on the return from Toronto to Atlanta, he was going to be on my flight, and he was going to give me this nice little uh, souvenir. It's a ball cap, and uh, it's emblazoned with the Toronto Maple Leafs um, logo, and then um, on the right side, it has a personalized embroidered uh, bit of uh, logo or whatever. It says APG, Captain Jeff. So Who's Captain Jeff? No, it's Jeff. Oh, okay. Put your glasses on. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to make you look. Okay. Yeah, wait a minute. It is Captain <laughs> Jeff. No, that's okay. I'll go by Captain Jeff if I need to. Uh, but anyway, thank you, David, for... Uh, sending that to the snail mail box, the P.O. Box, 2191 Roswell, Georgia, 30077. And uh, if you want to send us souvenirs or whatever, uh, that's the address. It's found on the airlinepilotguy.com website. So thank you very much. And I don't think I have anything else to talk about. My shingles virus, I think, is is starting to let up. You know, I, I still have... Little pains here and there, but, uh, you know, that's to be expected. And uh, I think I had a, a pretty, a relatively mild version of shingles anyway to begin with. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty much back to normal, except for the, they're still there and it's still, you know, a little bit of pain here and there, but, you know, whatever. I can live. And anything else before we uh, move on? I think so. Okay. No. Just, um, should we mention Dana's actually offline? Oh, yeah. Dana told us to tell you that he says hi and that he could make it. He was called out on a trip and I think he left yesterday. He's been flying in this really cruddy weather as I had been uh, the last few days as well. And uh, a lot of rain, a lot of high gusty winds, uh, low visibilities, low ceilings. And uh, it's just, it's just ugh, raw weather out there. Not a lot of fun to fly in. And, uh, so we, uh, we feel for you, man. Uh, we wish that you could have been here with us, but, uh, unfortunately he's flying a, a later, um, shift and, uh, he's flying right now. So he couldn't be with us today, but thank you for reminding me, Steph, to, uh, say hi for Dana. Sure thing. And with that, I think now we'll go to the coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No, thanks. I love coffee, I love tea, I love the APG community, coffee and tea, and the java and me, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh yeah, the coffee fund is your way, dear listener, to become involved in our show in a financial way. Of course, we always recommend that you don't send us anything if you need your money for food, shelter uh what else um clothing 
um, flying lessons, you know, that stuff, that, that important stuff. Uh, but if you have the resources available to you to help us in uh, supporting the show, please check us out at airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. And we have a couple different ways to do that. We have the classic fund, which is a PayPal thing where you can do a one-time donation or a recurring donation. And the other thing is Patreon. And you can become a patron of the show and you give a certain amount per episode. And since the last show, we have a new executive producer, G-Man Glaucus. Glaucus. And so welcome, Glaucus, to the Coffee Fun Cadre. We do appreciate that. So again, check out airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee if you're interested in becoming part of the Coffee Fund cadre. Thank you very much. Stand by for news. Charlie, Bravo, 4, Bravo, Delta, cross my 26 right. Charlie, Bravo, 4, Bravo, cross 26 right, and 448. And who else the call? Um, 
authorized for Delta 35. One eighteen heavy. Um, you said you need your car. Affirmative. We're holding code one right on Mike for Delta 35. Oh, Hawaiian 18 Happy Crestway, we're all right. Taxi via Delta Golf Charlie. Delta Golf Charlie, cross one right for Delta 35. Hawaiian 18 Happy. Thank you. Plus call. Hello, Alaska 608. We're behind the Hawaiian Heavy, uh, holding short one right at Mike. Alaska 608, Crestway, one right. Taxi via Delta Golf Charlie. Clear to cross one right and taxi via Delta Golf Charlie, Alaska 608. United 448, you gave us taxi instructions to 26 right. Do you want us to go to 1 right? United 448, runway 1 right, taxi via Charlie, Bravo 4, Bravo Delta, cross 126 right. Hey, Charlie 4, Bravo uh, 4, Bravo Delta, cross 26 right, going to 1 right, United 448. Thank you. Sorry, United 1675. I'm sorry, uh, 1765, we're short of 26 left, or 26 right on Alpha 6 right across. You know, it's 1765, cross my 26 right, turn right on Charlie, taxi to the ramp. Okay, cross 26 right, right on Charlie, taxi to the ramp for uh, United 1765. Any traffic in the area, please advise, we're crossing 26 right. Absolutely. United 448, give way to company at Bravo 6 or Alpha 6. Give way to company at 448. Frontier 1142 is spot 1. Frontier, I'm just 262. Frontier 1142 is spot number 1. Frontier 1142, Alpha 6, Bravo 6, Ground Standby. Tower America 2785, visual approach 26 left. American 
Tower, American 2785, holding short of two feet wide at Alpha 6. Thank you. Clearance, Korean Air 006. Korean Air 006, happy. Go ahead. We have a departure clearance, but we need to run a 26 left, uh, correction, 26 right due to performance. Danger is just, yeah. departure, 127.9 Korean Air. Korean Air is heavy, 127.9 Air. 127 Korean Air 006. Tower, American 2785, holding short of two are we cleared to cross? You said 2685? 2785, hold it short of 2685, it off the pitch. Um, one more time. What was your call? American 2785, hold it short. American 2685, cross my 2 Okay, cross Flight of Alpha 6, American 2785. Correct. American 2685, cross 2286 right, ground 1. Ground point 1, American 2785. Verify United, 448, cleared to cross 26 right on Delta. United 448, sorry, cross 1, 26 right, Delta, ground point 1. Alright, United 448, cross line 26 right, ground point 1. Uh, ground point 1, you want us to go to? Yes, United 448, cross line 26 right, ground point 1. Sorry, I'm, I'm choking a little bit. United 448, cross line 26 right, ground point 1. Hey guys, this is American 1084. Come up uh, 13177. Anybody else on one right? Do you hear United 448? Black clear. The Frontier 760 is short, number one. Okay, yeah. Yeah, somebody's checking with the tower up there. Uh, I think there's an operation too. There's something going on up there. Yeah, we agree. And the upbound aircraft, that is the Spirit 1069 on the ground here in Las Vegas. there for a while on the tower. It sounded like somebody walked in to ask her if she was okay. 
Everybody just uh, stand by one. I'm taking over now. I'll be right back with you. Thank you. Everything okay up there? It's getting there. Yes. Very difficult to listen to. That was uh, last Wednesday, late evening, around 11-something local time, 11.30 p.m., and uh, you hear at the beginning of the audio, you know, she's starting to make little mistakes here and there with the clearances and then not keeping the microphone pushed down all the way for all the transmissions. And then it just starts getting worse. Uh, at times, it sounded like she was laughing and other times crying, um, you know, coughing. And uh, a lot of people have said that this seems consistent with um, an episode of, um, of a stroke. And uh, I'm not sure. I think maybe, Dr. Steph, you may have some information regarding um, more uh, regarding her health situation. Well, it occurred to me that I hadn't seen anything recently. You know, there was a lot of news about this when it first happened. And that was, you know, a week ago at this point. Correct? Last Yes. A week ago. Um, mm -hmm. So I did a, a quick search actually before we started today and did come up with a uh, more recent article from the um, Las Vegas Review Journal. Actually, I think by the Associated Press. That was published yesterday. And interesting information in here. There's no confirmation of what happened to this controller. Um, but it does say that um, she resigned on Sunday. And um, officials have not identified the controller or what was or said what caused her to slur words uh, during a 40-minute span. And that she became subsequently became incapacitated. So... Not a whole lot of information, but interesting that she quit or resigned because of the incident. Right. Um, now, I uh, that audio snippet, I really cut a whole bunch of stuff out because, as you just mentioned, 40 minutes or so um, worth of audio um, recording this incident and how she was kind of going downhill. And then uh, toward the end, uh, we hear the controller that was on break coming up to relieve her and realizing that something was wrong. And he said, are you okay? Or are you all right? And then all of a sudden you hear his voice. He's now saying I'm taking control. And then I cut out the last portion of the audio recording where he is just starting to, you know, go into normal controller mode, you know, spitting out instructions and getting everything uh, back to normal. And uh, it was just a, a night and day <laughs> comparison to the way she was controlling things. And, you know, we had several of you send in um, questions regarding this. You know, what would you do in this situation? Would you accept any of these clearances? And, you know, it's 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 almost as if you have to treat this as a non-towered field at this point where uh, you'll note that some of the uh, some of the flights, some of the pilots out there were saying on the frequency what they were doing. Hey, we're crossing anybody here on the frequency. I'm you know, we're crossing runway two six right at a six. So, you know, be aware. And uh, yeah, what a what a situation. Um, and then there was somebody coming in, um, a few airplanes coming in on final that uh, never got clearance to, to land. I don't know if they landed anyway or if they went around. I didn't hear any of that on the uh, frequency. Yeah, I'm not sure entirely what, what happened there. And again, um, you know, most, most of that audio is there. But sometimes when you have those um, live ATC clips, you miss some things, some transmissions. So um, the going back to that last article that I was looking at, it does say that uh, five inbound aircraft remained in, remained airborne. So I guess they did go around or go back to... They probably went back to approach to control and said, hey, yeah. I don't know what's going on there, but... But I can't get clearance to land. Something and, doesn't sound right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think that was probably the... I'll get your guys' in, input on that for sure, but 
you know, that's what I would have. One of the interesting things is when, uh, you know, she cleared United to cross two, six, right on the way out to one, right. Um, and then she said, you know, after you cross two, six, right, uh, contact ground point one. Well, that's something that she would instruct airplanes to do if they were coming in, if there was more than one person up in the tower right. in the ground control position, but she was ground control and right. she was tower control. And that's why the United goes, guy says, point one, you know, you, you want us to go to ground point one. And, you know, everybody was going, yeah, something is not right here. Yeah. Poor Korean well, I mean, air. Of, <clears throat> I'm sorry. Uh, poor Korean air. Uh, they were, you know, trying to get clearance for the longer runway. And then she sent them to 127.9, which is the uh, east ramp control frequency. Interesting. So, you know, things are somewhat confusing for them anyway, because this is not their native language. They're probably going, what is, what? Why are we on, on? ramp control? We don't normally get, um, you know, clearance on ramp control. Anyway, you could almost tell that she didn't really understand that she was coming across the way she was. It was like yeah, she thought absolutely. she was I just mean, normally, you know, communicating. So, you know, I think I have a lot of um, thoughts about what might have been going on here. We have a lot of good um, questions here from listeners. I don't know if you want to go through that because we might address a lot of that in the course of answering some of their questions. Feel free. Maybe make it. Oh, okay. Um, so let's start with Nicholas here. He's the first one, I think. Um, so he's basically the one asking, what would the crew do in this situation? I would think the safer option would be to remain at the gate if already there, park out of the way if already taxiing, go missed and back to approach if inbound. It's pretty clear that no no flight crew would be confident in the safety of tower instructions. Would a crew be required to declare an emergency on frequency in order to deviate on any instructions on the ground or in the air? So I'm going to start with those two for Nick. What's your input? This is such an unusual situation that I don't think any of us have a definitive answer on this because uh, it's the first time in my entire career I've ever heard of it happening. And, of course, I've looked back at events in the past uh, of interest, uh, and I've got a few years uh, flying under my belt as well. So this is such a one-off. I think you're going to make it up as you go along, and I think you just do the safest thing for your aircraft. So unless you're absolutely certain you've got a valid landing clearance and that the controller issuing it is uh, fully compass mentis, I wouldn't land. I'd go around and... Uh, as the guys did, uh, go back to approach and try and find out what's going on. I think if you were on the ground, uh, you would do as some of the guys did, which is hold short of the runway. So I'm not taking off until I'm, I know what's going on. Some guys continue to taxi. They made their own calls uh, to broadcast that they were crossing runways and things. But I think the best thing to do is just sit on your hands if you can. If you're on the ground, do nothing. Uh, if you're airborne, then obviously you're in a slightly more difficult situation because uh, if you're short on gas, you're probably going to have to head straight off to a diversion. Uh, if you're not, uh, then you can afford to hang around and wait for the situation to be resolved as ultimately it did. But it took an inordinately long time, and I think that's uh, going to be um, something that the FAA will be very concerned about. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, as you say, same thing, same answer. Uh, it depends on the situation. It's hard to, it's easy now to look back at it and say, well, this is what I would have done. But if you're in there in the moment, um, the best thing to do, I think, is to just stop, stop the operation, 
and as many of the uh, pilots did and see what was going on because many people said that they were concerned about what was happening there. Sure. And I'm going to kind of skip ahead to Josh's question here too, because he asks about, um, he was, he says, I'm interested by some of the pilots decisions to call their respective companies. Um, I think a lot of them do real, did realize that this controller was having a serious problem trying to figure out how to get help there and trying to figure out the most expeditious way to do it. Um, is that something you guys would be able to do to? Yeah. That, yeah. That's something I'd probably definitely do. Uh, contact well, we all have phones. We just pick it up and dial 911 um, or speak to your company. That's probably the best thing. They've got better communications. You're quite right. But uh, on some of these uh, towers, uh, you know, one guy on break, he might even be having a snooze. Uh, one uh, lady up actually actively controlling in the tower, uh, you may not be able to get access to the building. Um you know, because I remember there was one incident of a controller falling asleep uh, and uh, the security guard that was walking around realized he was asleep because uh, everyone was calling him and he wasn't replying. And he spent ages banging on the side of the control tire trying to get in to wake him up and um, without success. So, you yeah. know, um, it seems to me that uh, there is a certain level of manning below which you cannot afford to come. Uh, and uh, in addition, if you're going to be the only person in the tower, um, shouldn't they, even if you're on break, uh, perhaps you shouldn't even be listening to what the guy or the controller above you is saying so that if all of a sudden they do faint, stop talking, there's some problem, you might get a clue and dash up there and, and sort things out, but it appears not. Good point. Like the uh, like Radio Rogers Radio Studio, I bet they have speakers all over the place and in offices and everything else where they're monitoring uh, what is on air because as you mentioned in your yeah everyone's listening to what's going on so if all of a sudden there's a glitch and Roger's mic stops working or something they pick up on it straight away yeah that dead air is death in yeah. in the radio world mm -hmm. yeah uh, that's an interesting thought um, seems like a simple solution to these types of problems yeah. you know few and far between as they are um, Nick goes on, he says, what are Dr. Steph's thoughts? Do you think this controller was capable of giving even the most basic instruction with confidence? There was no conflict. Does a person in this situation have the ability to realize something is wrong? I'm thinking she was unaware because she had access to a crash phone that would surely lead to immediate help. Um, that's from Nick in Las Vegas. Yeah, so, you know, listening back on it, um, trying to think of the possible reasons for why she might have been acting and speaking the way that she was. A lot of people have brought up concerns about was she having a stroke? Was she having a transient ischemic attack? Um, there's other things that come to mind too as potential reasons for why someone would act like that or, or speak like that. Certain types of seizures can cause that type of speech pattern um, and may not um, cause the person to even realize that they have a problem. Um, certainly um, very rare catastrophic things, brain tumors can produce that type of a speech pattern. Um, medications, side effects, if you're taking a new medication and it affects you poorly, um, and then certainly, you know, drugs, alcohol, you have to consider all of those things. And I, I don't know what the answer is to what she had. We don't have that information. No, and to, to a certain extent, uh, it, it's medical incompetence. So uh, perhaps we shouldn't, but uh, we may find out through the sure. FAA in the future. But um, I, I'm a little distressed to hear that uh, she may have resigned 
because, uh, of course, people will then point the finger, um, whereas, of course, uh, if she remained in, in employment, she might well be receiving treatment with the possibility sure. of coming back to work. So I'm a little concerned about that. Yeah, that was the the strange thing for me. It doesn't make sense. You know, if someone had a serious medical event, um, typically that's not a reason for them to resign several days later from from their job. That's not usually what you, you see. I know there's been some differing um, thoughts in the chat room about this. I'll just leave that at that. But um, typically, if someone's had a major medical event, that's usually, uh, to some extent, uh, the, the press or whoever's um, giving the, the news conference related to it, the FAA or whoever's in charge, um, will probably give some indication that that's what's happened or something along those lines without giving any specifics or details. Um, but when there's no information about it and when it's just a case of resigning after the fact, it just sounds a lot stranger. It's hard to know for certain what happened. I would have thought that they would have used a, a terminology like she's on medical leave. She's on or, medical leave or yeah. she had a serious medical event. Right. We can't disclose details, that type of thing. So... But I think in her case, I don't think she had the ability to realize that something was wrong. She continued to try to work and didn't give any indication to anyone else that she was having difficulty doing so, except for when she said, I'm choking a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. so. Wow. Quite an interesting event, for sure. Yeah, but perhaps it will highlight the uh, the lack of controller availability, because uh, I know a lot of, um, I've been listening to the, the other podcasts we have, and uh, and I hear you know on Twitter and listen to other controllers complaining about it. Certainly in the UK, about the lack of coverage. Um, certainly in the uh, less you know, busy hours, the night hours, where things usually aren't so bad, uh, it, it comes down to very small numbers, and it's all done in the um, you know for cost cutting um, because uh, the airports want to obviously their profit margins and uh, if they could afford to provide a decent coverage they would but it appears that they uh, seem to be able to get away with a much reduced coverage and perhaps this will stop the slide uh, it doesn't take much to realize just how dangerous it can be if your one and only controller is incapacitated even the uh, controllers during my tour last week said that uh, even in atlanta in atlanta tower and approach uh, they're short-staffed Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I don't quite understand why other than they're not being employed, because I quite honestly, uh, air traffic is uh, is a very responsible, uh, reasonably well paid, uh, an excellent job to have. I think I'd be very proud of being an air traffic controller. Yes. Um, if, you know, if I couldn't be a pilot. Uh, and I think it would be a fantastic job to have. I, I just don't understand why people aren't motivated to do it. And if they are, then, uh, you know, it's all down to who can get a job and why uh, you have to ask the question why the, uh, more aren't being employed. I don't know that it has to do with um, interest or volume of people applying for the job. I think it comes back to funds to actually fund those spots for controllers, potentially, because, it, you know, there's a couple different ways you can go down the pathway to being a controller here in the U.S. Opposing Bases is probably a good place to find out information on that, their podcast. Um, but basically, you can go to school um, and take a pathway that basically goes through university, technical school to become an air traffic controller. Or you can apply through a general pool, um, and they open that up every once in a while. They just had a round of recent um, uh, general applications. Um, I have no idea how many controllers they take from either of those two pathways. Um, 
but I, I know that they do, they have been hiring controllers. So hopefully that does something to alleviate those shortages. Yeah. Finally, I'd just like to say that I, I hope the lady herself, um, uh, you know, is okay and uh, gets over this. And it, it may be not easy for her because, of course, the entire world, uh, of those of us interested, know about it now. So, uh, you know, she, she may have a difficult time ahead, even if it uh, is something that uh, she, you know, um, happened to her that was not of her causing. So, uh, you know, I do feel sorry for her, and I, uh, I wish her well. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's move on to the second item in the news folder. Um, this was a very interesting event. Uh, could have been... A, a horrible tragedy, uh, but it had a happy ending. Uh, in Portugal, an Air Astana Embraer ERJ-190 registration Papa 4 Kilo Charlie Juliet performing flight 1388 from Alverca, Port Portugal to Minsk, Bel um, Bel Belarus, and further on to Almaty, uh, Kazakhstan, with three crew and three passengers, was in the initial climb in adverse meteorological conditions when the crew felt the aircraft did not adequately respond to control inputs, the autopilot could not be engaged. The aircraft developed oscillatory wing movements despite the crew using the controls in all three aircraft axes to counter and minimize the oscillations. The aircraft and occupants entered high G loads. The crew declared emergency considering to ditch the aircraft in the ocean due to the lack of control. While continuing to struggle with the aircraft, none of the aircraft systems issued any indication of malfunction. Only alerts for abnormal flight altitudes occurred. The crew lost control completely several times, but were able to regain control to some extent. In discussion between the three pilots on board as well as the three technicians, the crew decided to disable the flight control module, the FCM, and put the flight controls into direct mode. Thereafter, the situation improved considerably. However, without restoring normal operation as difficulties to control the aircraft's roll axis, aileron's bank angle remained. The crew realized the ailerons were behaving erratically and reduced roll control to an ad absolute minimum. To look for an airport in good weather, a plan was developed with ATC to land at Beja, Portugal. A pair of F-16 fighter aircraft by Portugal's Air Force joined the aircraft. A landing was intended on Beja's uh, runway 19 right. The aircraft needed to go around twice due to unstabilized approaches, and then approached the third time uh, runway 19 right and touched down on runway 19 left due to being unable to correct the drift. Two occupants were taken to a hospital. Uh, Portugal's GPIAA rated the occurrence a serious incident and reported on November 14th, quote, all on board were physically and emotionally shaken, one of the passengers sustaining a leg injury. The investigation is ongoing, uh, still pending confirmation from the undertaking of additional testing. The evidence that was possible to collect at the time of drafting uh, suggesting the existence of failures in the aircraft roll controls configuration consistent with possible disturbance during maintenance actions. The aircraft had undergone maintenance at Alverca for like the past six weeks and was on its first flight after maintenance. And then there's a report, uh, the text and body of the report from the GPIAA, and we'll put this in the show notes so you can uh, 
see that as well. There are a couple of uh, links also in the notes where uh, there is some footage, video footage. I, I believe the uh, one is from one of the F-16s uh, as they were on the wing of the uh, 190 coming in for landing at Beja, Portugal. Another um, from the ground uh, viewpoint. And uh, there uh, is also a couple links here in the show notes to the um, the audio, the ATC audio. It's not really good quality. Let me play just a little bit um, of it. I'm not going to play the whole thing because this thing on went on for quite some time. Um, and uh, apparently it was quite an ordeal for the pilots to keep the airplane from crashing the moment they got this thing airborne. Okay, this goes on, and um, again, it's really worth listening. This is these uh, videos are from uh, VAS uh, Aviation, VAS Aviation, uh, the YouTube channel that we use quite often to uh, play audio, and uh, you can see in the video um, the flight track uh, using uh, flight radar twenty four. And, and the reason why it's important to see this is that later on in this incident, they keep asking to get vectors to the sea because they want to ditch because they, they just can't control the airplane. There's, they're thinking there's absolutely no way we're going to be able to land on land because we just cannot control the aircraft enough to, to land on a runway. So they're thinking we're just going to have to ditch this thing. And the interesting thing, as you listen to the controllers telling them, you know, what heading to fly and how far they need to fly before they are over the open sea. Uh, the whole time you're watching on flight radar 24, they're going in left turns, left circles, just spiraling along in the sky, moving in a general northerly direction. Um, and sadly, ironically, 
every time further and further away from the sea. So every time they ask for the heading to get to the sea and ask for the distance to get there, the number keeps increasing because these guys are actually moving to the northeast, not to the southwest the way they need to go. Uh, it's very uh, frustrating. Obviously, in addition to the control problems, they must have had some instrumentation problems and their instruments must not have been telling or giving them good heading information or something. I don't know. But um, as we hear in the part two video, I'll start it at uh, the 7-12 minute mark. Okay, so he says, obviously, at this point, they must have disconnected the um, the FCOM or whatever it was called, the uh, the flight control computers, and uh, were able to generally control the airplane enough to fly it southward down to Beja for landing. And uh, anyway, it's a very uh, you'll you can hear the uh, Portugal Air Defense Command F-16s talking to the flight. At times you can hear just the exasperation and just the incredible fatigue that these pilots were under. Uh, you can just hear it in their voices. Um, it's just, it was quite, <laughs> quite a situation. I, I, it's terrifying, uh, Jeff. Um, I don't know. The, there have been some similar instances of guys um, not having this problem, but having other control problems. There was a 747 in Japan where they lost all the hydraulics and they spent, uh, I don't know, about 40 minutes going up and down, up and down, out of control, basically. And and I, I just can't, they all died. I just can't imagine the desperation uh, that these pilots must have felt uh, trying to control this aircraft that appeared to be completely uncontrollable. Now, one of the commenters on the uh, one of these YouTube videos, um, Nikita Kaminsky. Now, I don't know if this is real or somebody made this up, but this person commented, just received some information from the inside of ongoing investigation. Looks like maintenance guys switched the controls of the aircraft after Class C inspection. Right after takeoff, pilots tried to roll the aircraft to one side and it rolled completely to the opposite. Tried to turn on the autopilot a couple of times, and when they switched it off, the aircraft would roll to the left every single time. Also, there was a brief 90 degrees nose down dive with the GPWS screaming. After stabilizing the aircraft, they were left to fly only with rudder, elevators, and engines almost for the entire time they were up there. Basically, they had to learn to fly the aircraft in two hours. The captain was so tired that the co-pilot had to land the aircraft on the third try, breaking three runway lights. On board, there were six souls, three pilots, three engineers. One of them had to be assisted in an ambulance because of heart problems. Yeah, th this was not a, uh, a normal passenger flight for no. them. So one wonders um, if they were uh, perhaps checking the aircraft out after maintenance because it's a little unusual just to have uh, the three crew and three engineers on board um, who were presumably there, uh, I don't know, perhaps to get back where they came from or to observe the aircraft um, while it was flying. Uh, and presumably they were of some help, I hope, 
to the uh, the crew, but I, if they've if they've somehow misconnected, you know, you think of modern airplanes; these things should be foolproof. Um, I, I know it's happened in the past that uh, you you know you do uh, uh, con- checks on the ailerons and they've been misconnected. Uh, I know a friend of mine, captain on my airline. Uh, he was also flying as a reserve officer on Harriers, and he got airborne in a Sea Harrier to do a, a test flight to discover that they had uh, connected the ailerons the wrong way around. And very shortly after takeoff, he lost control of the airplane and had to eject out of it. He had uh, ejected out of two Harriers in his career, both for various problems. So he's considerably shorter than he was when he started. <laughs> but um, so these things do happen. But you you would like to think, you know, like you you make the connections impossible to connect the wrong way around. I mean, that would be a good piece of design, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. It would with multiple checks along the way. Yeah. Well, which is why you know we do flight control checks. Now mm-hmm. we can't see our alien ailerons going up and down. But uh, when you can, you know, you put the stick over and the aileron comes up to meet it. Actually look out at the wing and see what that aileron is. Exactly. But we can see on our flight control indications on the um, electronic displays we have what the controls are doing when we move them. And it's one of the things I check, you know. We, We tell the other guy which way we're moving the stick and he calls which way the flight controls have moved. So, you know, you think that would be foolproof, but... I don't know, apparently not. Not always, I guess. Wow. Interesting. That yeah, I, be- I believe it wasn't, the aircraft was in for a sea check. It was. That information is, is yep. there. It was a sea check, and it was there mm-hmm. for about six weeks. And um, I think it's, you know, protocol, um, and not only protocol, but probably regulatory requirement that the aircraft be flown by you know, on a check flight before, you know, put return to passenger service. So that's probably... Yeah. As, uh, Aristana, where are they based? Do either of you know? Um, I don't know because I know they were fer- uh-huh. I, they were ferrying the flight back to or the plane back to Belarus and then Kazakhstan. So I'm assuming that part of the world, and that they're not regularly flying in um, Portugal, perhaps. They were probably. It's kind of like what I've done before for Acme fly an an 88 or a 90 down to Mexico, Mexico, yep, uh, for big checks like that. And we have people that are qualified to fly the airplanes after they go through a major check like that and go through, you know, put it through its paces to make sure everything is, is okay before, you know, it's put back into passenger service. Mm-hmm. So that's probably what this is. Uh, for those of you who are listening, <clears throat> excuse me, there actually is video, I think from one of the F-16s of the aircraft finally on its uh, final attempt at landing and landing. And you can see how off the center line they are when they touch down. Yeah, it turns out it wasn't even the runway they were trying to land on. Oh, it but, was. Oh, really? A different yeah, they were, runway? they were going for one nine right, and they ended up landing on one nine oh, left. Yeah. yeah, that's. I hope to never experience such oh, I know. terrible difficulties in controlling an aircraft ever. I can't even imagine. Wow. So hopefully we'll hear more about exactly what happened in this instance. But I could definitely see, you know, this crew, you know, was obviously one of the better ones because I could see a lot of other crews not being able to control it at all and just, you know, giving up and letting sure. the thing crash, Sure, you know? So, okay. Uh, moving on to uh, C pilot error led to military plane crash that killed nine airmen in May. So in May of this year, we talked about it on the show, a, uh, 
Air Guard, uh, Puerto Rico uh, National Guard uh, C-130 uh, airplane crashed shortly after takeoff out of Savannah. Uh, the airplane had been at Savannah undergoing some maintenance, including uh, work to the number one engine, I believe. I have to remind myself here. I think that was the uh, engine that um, failed. It was either one or two, one of the engines on the left wing. And uh, they were doing some stuff to it uh, to prepare it for its final flight from Savannah to uh, Davis-Monthan Air Force Base. Basically, it was going to be removed from service and it was going to spend the rest of its life at the Boneyard. And uh, let's see what the article here says. The mishap aircraft had been at Savannah for almost a month uh, to undergo pre-scheduled fuel cell maintenance and unscheduled work on engine number one. And uh, by the 156 Air Wing maintenance personnel using the facilities of the 165th Airlift Wing. So I guess the Puerto Rican Guard um, mechanics were working on the airplane at the 165th Airlift Wing uh, facilities in Savannah. During the takeoff roll, this is from the, um, is it the final report? I think it is. Uh, yeah. Uh, during the takeoff roll, engine one revolutions per minute RPM fluctuated and did not provide normal RPM when mishap pilot number one advanced the throttle lever into the flight range for takeoff. Approximately eight seconds prior to aircraft rotation, uh, engine one RPM and torque significantly de decayed which substantially lowered thrust. The fluctuation on roll and significant performance decay went unrecognized by the mishap crew until rotation, when the mishap pilot one commented on aircraft control challenges, and the mishap aircraft veered left and nearly departed the runway into the grass before it achieved flight. The mishap aircraft departed KSAV at approximately 11.25 local time. As the Mishap crew retracted the landing gear. They identified the engine one RPM and torque malfunction, and uh, the aircraft commander called for engine shutdown. However, the mishap crew failed to complete the takeoff continued after engine failure procedure, the engine shutdown procedure, and the after takeoff checklist as directed by the flight manual, and the mishap aircraft's flaps remained at 50%. Additionally, the aircraft commander banked left into the inoperative engine continued to climb, and varied left and right rudder inputs. At an altitude of approximately 900 feet mean sea level and 131 knots indicated airspeed, the mishap pilot one uh, input over 9 degrees of left rudder. The mishap aircraft skidded left, the left wing stalled, and the mishap aircraft departed controlled flight and crashed. So... Wow. We talked a little wow. bit about uh, engine shutdowns during check rides and and training from Arnaud in Paris uh, last episode, and we talked a little bit about critical engines and you know problems that you may experience in a multi-engine airplane uh, when you have an engine inoperative. And when I read, and that's why I bolded these things, putting in the left rudder. When that's it's the completely, dead engine. yeah, the dead yeah. engine, the, the complete opposite thing you would do when you have an engine failure. So just to make it kind of simple, some of the, um, the memory items or the mnemonics that, you know, pilots learn when they're first learning to fly multi-engine aircraft. Um, when you have an engine failure, you have significantly reduced power or thrust. Um, you're going to need 
rudder on the opposite side to counteract that and maintain straight and level flight. So the way that you identify your dead engine is that's your dead foot because that's the one that's not working. So dead foot, dead engine. So engine. this was engine number one, which is on the left side. Then he's putting in left rudder. Not correct. Wrong. Also, banking into the inoperative engine is the Not opposite a good thing to idea. do. Yeah. The mnemonic there is to raise the dead. So there you, you want go. to bank the opposite I like direction. your instructor who taught you all these things. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Very <useful. laughs> yeah. We learned to uh, kick the ball. So, uh, you know, you've got the the, the slip uh, has a little ball in it. Uh, not on modern airplanes like I fly. It's all electronic. But uh, in the old days, it was just a little ball in a tube. And uh, when that swung, you just kicked it to kick it in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. And that works. Yeah. Um, so they, they didn't have a chance when these improper control inputs were used. Um, you know, the, the aircraft didn't have a fighting chance to survive that, which is a shame. I know. Uh, I mean, are there so many uh, errors? I mean, a, a litany of them, really. You do wonder if the crew were completely on the ball that day. I mean, what had they been doing the night before? Mm -hmm. uh, I had to ask, but um, it's possibly because, uh, you know, they they didn't reject the takeoff right at the beginning when right. uh, they were getting RPM fluctuations. So why on earth not? Mm -hmm. um, and certainly before uh, eight seconds prior to rotation, uh, again, they, they lost the engine. That's a long time, eight seconds. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going, well, why didn't you reject then? And then not to complete all the uh, required drills. I'm going, well, that's damned odd as well. And to be absolutely blunt, this particular emergency, a, an engine failure uh, at V1, which is our most practiced mm -hmm. uh, engine failure drill. I mean, we do it all the time. Because it's one of the hardest ones, the uh, our authorities consider that the one you must be most capable of doing. So we do it every single time we're in the sim. Uh, I'm assuming uh, they would have had the same training. So I'm just just a little bit amused. Yeah, it's flabbergasting to see all the things they missed, as you mentioned. You know, that's something they should have never that that airplane should never have gotten airborne. No, to begin with. No. Wow. Wow. Um, so I don't know what else to say about that, except that, uh, you know. Very sad. Yeah. Very sad. Exceptionally sad. Yeah. All right. And finally, item D. This is a head scratcher. We talked about the Lion Air crashed in the last couple of episodes where it crashed into the Java Sea shortly after takeoff. And uh, at first we learned that there were some altitude and uh, airspeed disagree indications and then something about an angle of attack sensor giving them false indications and then a hint that there was some kind of a system that nobody seemed to know anything about that uh, was put into effect for the max models to help uh, the airplane recover from uh, low uh, gross weight um, uh, certain center of gravity uh, settings etc and uh, what it does basically is on its own starts trimming the aircraft and in this case it was trimming nose down for a 10 second burst and um, now of course well we'll skip that part right now um, the thing that's frustrating about this is that um, apparently according to pilots from 
American Airlines and Southwest Airlines, and also confirmed by the other operator in the United States that operates the 737 MAX models, United Airlines, that this was never disclosed by Boeing to, and they didn't put it in the flight manual. Nobody seemed to know that this system, the MCAS system, I believe it's called, uh, was installed in the airplane. And that is the thing that is, I, I'm floored that there is an, a system that we're, you know, we are supposed to know everything about these airplanes and how all the systems operate, etc. And then you're flying an airplane and you don't even know that there is this system in there that will do this. Now, it could be argued, as we mentioned in the last show, regardless of what was happening there, if the trim wheel is going nose down, clack, 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 you know, if you've ever been in a Boeing cockpit, when that trim wheel is moving, you can hear it moving and you can see it moving. And if it's moving for more than a few seconds, nose down, I'm going to do the procedure to stop it from doing that. Because obviously that's a runaway in my mind, that's a runaway stabilizer trim moment. And I need to do the bold face, the, uh, the, the, uh, action items to stop it from occurring. But that doesn't, that doesn't let Boeing off the hook here for installing a system in an airplane and not letting pilots know. I, I just can't, I can't believe this. No, I have, I, I, just crazy to me. I can't even figure out the right words to say about it. It's like, oh yeah, well we put it in there because we needed it for, I mean, basically it sounds like they needed it as part of the certification for the aircraft. Yes. Because the, the, the engines are so much larger and they produce so much more thrust that they had to have the system to kind of, you know, and I think the, the, the go, go ahead. ahead. I was gonna say the, this did not come from Boeing, but an argument I saw for why this may have happened is because they, uh, it was supposed to be a system that was basically never intended to have a problem, which doesn't make any sense at all, but assuming appropriate maintenance on it and assuming that it was serviced the correct way, then it was intended to be something that would help instead of hinder. But clearly that's not the case. I'd also seen that somebody said that, well, you know, they sold this Max model as Hey, if your pilots are already checked out on all the other 737 models, you know, the new generation 737s, the 800, the 700, the 900, uh, it's, it's just like those, you don't, they don't well, have to learn anything There's just a little else. bit of differences training. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen anywhere from, you know, a couple hours as, as a, uh, computer based training course, just to be familiar with a few new things about the aircraft, but but how hard would it be just to kind of add, oh, in. yeah, by the way, there is There's a difference here. Thing. There's an yeah. added thing that we have in there to keep you guys out of trouble. <laughs> yeah, very true. Uh, they're not the only uh, aircraft manufacturer to have this sort of a problem because we know that Airbus has had a few problems with its flight laws. Uh, that um, Airbus uh, A330 uh, with an Australian crew on, that started getting uh, unexpected nose-down pitch moments uh, when they were flying, just heading off across the ocean around Western Australia. Uh, they successfully bought the aircraft back. Uh, they were eventually managed to control it. Uh, and we're always learning about things like that because that was just uh, one case of in a million when two failures uh, with 
in identical circumstances, fooled the flight computers into thinking, I've got three systems, two are reading the same thing, but unbeknown to everyone, those two were both broken in an identical manner. Right. And so the system, which is supposed to vote out the broken uh, component, said, well, those two have got to be correct because they're both reading the same thing. And it voted out the only um, portion of the angle of attack sensors that were re giving a correct reading. Uh, no one would have dreamt that could have happened. Um, but it obviously did. And uh, now we're very aware of it and we know exactly what to do. I don't know exactly what the problem with this was, but it sounds kind of similar. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of the same thing where, you know, it's a, it's a scenario that was perhaps never even thought of because it was contrary to how the system is supposed to perform in the first place, perhaps. Yeah, but it, it is a growing trend uh, sure. uh, amongst um, companies to only give the pilots what they consider to be the essential information we don't get if i look at my flight control manual someone just asked me a question in the uh, chat room and i i i have no way to answer that because if i look at my flight manual it'll have some very simple wiring diagrams and a few single line exp explanations there's no way i would be able to find out exactly how something worked without possibly going to the engineering uh, manuals or probably having to go back to Airbus and ask them for the detailed examination, uh, you know, de detailed ex explanation, sorry, because that's what it would take. Because our manuals have been simplified almost to the point of being ridiculously light in technical information. Yes, they're thinking, well, they're trained pilots, They we train them to follow checklists. And if well, you follow the checklist, you'll, every, everything will be fine. Exactly. We've talked about this before, and I think you guys have both mentioned that at the beginning of your um, airline careers, uh, manuals and training was much more systems based and in detail, nitty gritty type stuff. And it's kind of moved away from that, as you said, more to here's how you just fly the thing. Here's the, you know, buttons to push, things to do, checklists to follow. You're good to go. Yeah. Don't worry about the, the hows and whys as much. Another example of this situation where an aircraft manufacturer has a system installed in an airplane. Now, in this case, the Scandinavian Air Service um, crash, um, let's see, what flight was it? Flight 751 out of Stockholm, Orla Orlando, um, and uh, they uh, ended up, uh, it had something to do with de-icing. I don't think they de-iced the airplane properly, and as they started to rotate uh, some of the sheets of ice ended up getting ingested in the both engines, which is not good. Um, and so they were getting compressor stalls. And so the pilots were bringing the throttles back to help the engines recover. Because if you keep the throttles full forward or full thrust, uh, it's going to be hard to uh, stop the compressors from stalling. Uh, and every time they did that, then the throttles automatically went back up to the high thrust settings and uh, the system is called automatic thrust restoration and it had not been described to the flight crew by the scandinavian scandinavian airline system uh it was not in their manual they didn't know anything about this now i don't think that in this case it, i don't believe it was mcdonald douglas's fault because they you know that was a, a system that most everybody that operated the airplane knew about it was just that sas decided that they didn't need to tell their pilots this uh system was there and it was a very uh, disorienting and frustrating situation for the pilots because every time they tried to pull the power back, the, and, and I don't think it had anything to do with whether the 
auto throttles were on or off, the system still um, hmm. acted to put the thrust up to a high thrust setting. Yeah, this dumbing down uh, is a, a really worrying trend, I must admit. It concerns me. Yeah, it is. And, and as you mentioned, Steph, yes, it used to be where, like when I went through training on the 727, we always joked we could basically take a 727 completely apart and put it all back together. I mean, that's how well you knew everything. Of course, that's an exaggeration. But I mean, we knew like temperature settings where certain valves would close and there was no way for us to even read whatever temperature is in that area. So you ask yourself, well, why, why do we do have I to even... know it's 425 degrees Celsius? If I have no way to measure it or no yeah. way to know what it actually is in that moment. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing to know that there's so a system, it's... if it gets hot, that does this. But yeah. to yeah. know the exact numbers and units. So is it's like... this balance of trying to figure out how much information do you need to know in right. order to be safe and in order to work and understand the what's going on with the system in the event of an emergency. And the pendulum has swung way too far the other yeah. direction. I and, think and that certainly you, there has to be a balance there. Yeah. Certainly there's going to be information that's extraneous, that's not going to be helpful no matter what. And then there's going to be the other side where you don't have enough information to even understand what the aircraft is trying to do. Right. Yeah. And the fact that this um, fault was so strong, so severe that it was capable of flying the aircraft into the ground yeah. Uh, really has me concerned. Yeah. So I look forward, and I know many of you listening to the show out there are, are fly the 737 and maybe even the 737 MAX. We know somebody in particular who I believe today has flown it for the very first time for his that airline. That is correct, yes. And he told me he would definitely send some feedback regarding Excellent. this. Look forward. Yeah. look forward to that. That'll be good. All right. With that... I think it's now time to move on to your feedback. Captain, incoming message. Ray, my neighbor to the north in Alpharetta, writes, Hi, Captain Jeff. I headed out to Rome a couple of weeks ago. Once I got to the airport, the total absence of Alitalia aircraft made me realize that I was at RMG rather than FCO. That and the fact that my journey there had not involved the hometown airline. Anyways, I had a good time. Was there for the practice day on Friday and the first day of the show Saturday. Pretty neat. The organizer had arranged for some of us photographers to get in ahead of the crowds on Saturday. And apart from some good shots of airplanes in the dawn's early light, I had an interesting and unhurried visit in the cockpit of a C-130H3 chatting with its navigator. And then he gives us a link to and I, you know what I don't uh, that must be his link to uh, all the photos that he took there so we'll include this in the show notes as well anyways to the purpose of this email later in the Saturday morning Grumman OV1D Mohawk serial number 162 Charlie November 10 Victor Delta flew in what can I say I'm a sucker for triple tailed airplanes messenger York Connie twin pioneer OV1D grin Anyway, from what I can see, the fuselage and tail of this Mohawk are covered with names. I kind of guess this is some sort of roll of honor, but I haven't been able to find anything via Google. Can anyone on the APG network enlighten me to what the names represent? And, by the way, I kept the APG faith proudly wearing my Save the Mad Dogs t-shirt amongst the Saturday crowd. Subtle hint, remember that when you're looking for fodder, 
I mean Anorex, to join you in the Acme Mad Dog farewell flight under seven East Coast bridges between Miami and Bangor sometime in the future. Okay. Um, hmm. I don't know if I'm going to be doing that flight, Ray. That seems a little much. Yeah, uh, unless you want to be wearing an orange jumpsuit at the end of it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, he ends, thanks as always for the great podcast series. Stay well. Regards, Ray Williams in Alpharetta, Georgia. And uh, he included some, uh, well, we have one photo here in the show notes, but again, a link to all of the other great photos he took. He's quite a photographer. And uh, thank you very much for checking in with the uh, report from the air show in Rome, Georgia, Ray. Very interesting aircraft. I don't think I've ever seen a picture of that one before. I haven't either, honestly. It looks like it should have some sort of personality, like a face painted on the front of it, doesn't mm -hmm. it? Kind of. Yeah, it kind of looks like, it looks like a like a bug face. Yeah, like a bug front. with yeah. the big windows and you can see the whole interior of the cockpit there. Must have been a forward air controller type of uh, mission. Mm, yeah, perhaps. Interesting. Well, thanks, Ray. Uh, let's see. Moving on. Ivan, uh, he sent uh, some feedback a couple of shows ago regarding the C-141 uh, that he saw when he was at Dobbins Air Base here in uh, the Atlanta area. And I, we talked about the instrumentation and how it was kind of ahead of its time. And they had a lot of vertical tape instruments. Now, honestly, I'm looking at this photo. He said, uh, ask and you shall receive. And he sent a photo of the uh, a little bit further back where you can see some of the instrumentation of the engines in the center panel. And you can tell that they are vertical tape in instruments. They are not digital because digital wasn't a thing back then. Uh, they're all analog, but they're analog tape uh, instruments and presented in a vertical fashion. And you'll note that if you look at the primary flight or display, well, it's not really a primary flight display. It's kind of like what we had right before the primary flight displays started to come into use. You have the um, uh, artificial horizon in the middle there, and then right below it, you have the uh, heading magnetic indicator uh, or HDMI. And then off to the right, you'll note that that's an altimeter. It's a vertical tape altimeter. And on the left side, vertical tape airspeed, vertical tape mock, and also vertical tape uh, radio altimeters. So uh, it was, uh, as I said, pretty ahead of its time. This was the 19, early 1960s when they started uh, putting these out there. I think 1963, something like that. I don't remember the white background, like you, know, you see all these gauges and they're all black. And mm -hmm. then the, the back oh, uh, the white panel is white. The, yeah. I don't remember it being like that, uh, honestly. Uh, well, maybe may it's not actually, so it's just a black and white photo. No, I think it's a real photo. That it's that just real? that maybe, real maybe colored? some of the, maybe this is an A model and not a B model. And maybe the A models look like this and the B models weren't, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Not sure exactly. I'm looking at the radio call 60186. What's that about? Uh, that's the, uh, the tail number of the, of the, uh, aircraft the, and, uh, and okay. November. Yeah. And so, we, so our call sign was always Mac when I flew it was Mac six zero one eight six or whatever it is. Um, the, the Mac and then the actual tail number of your airplane. And you then, seem to be seeing a bigger version of the photograph I've got. But, yeah. I can um, only see half of it. I think from what you described. Oh yeah. 
Really? So, um, well, so you can. I, oh, okay. I can see the AI and I can see the top of the uh, HSI. But from what I can see, it looks surprisingly like the Phantom instruments that we had. Hmm. Very similar. Well, so I'm going to click on and see what you guys are looking at. Because they're using show notes. Well, yeah, I'm looking. Oh. Oh. You can no, scroll I see it the other around. Now I had to click on the link. Yeah. Yeah, if you click on yeah, the link different. and then you okay. can you can zoom in if you want. And then once yeah. you're zoomed in, you can use a two finger on the trackpad to move it around. Yeah, I can see the big picture that you were describing now. Okay. Did you find it, Nick? Nah. He doesn't <laughs> care. <laughs> oh, I have now. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, that looks quite similar. This this one's in color. Yeah, the one that we were looking at is not in color. That's why I asked if it was maybe a different color. Oh, okay. Now, now, did your uh, attitude indicator spin around and give you headings or as well as up and down, left and right? No. No, the phantom one did. Yeah, I don't think I don't think so. I don't know. It's been <laughs> I last flew that airplane in 1985. So um, what's not, the matter with you? It's been 33 years. <laughs> Long time ago. I'm old. <laughs> 33 years to be exact. And Thank the you. undercarriage uh, selector looks pretty much identical to the Phantom one. Really? Yeah, it looks very similar. Interesting. Same uh, sort of uh, doll's eyes barber's pole when the uh, gear was in transit. Uh, and then used to win, do little pictures of wheels when it was down. Uh -huh. That's a great airplane. It really is. Um, yeah, I think that uh, when this uh, Evernote note translated to the the Google Docs version, uh, that first photo uh, didn't open up automatically for you. That's why you had to click on that thing. So Yeah. What was the uh, bit of kit that's up on the combing? Um, With three knobs on. I think that, I, I don't really remember this, but I think it may like be a checklist. Of, uh, yeah, that's a what scrolling it looks checklist. like. It looks like a kind of a scrolling checklist. Maybe we had that? I don't know. The, the thing over there, it looks like a, a, a wireless uh, Wi-Fi A router, router yes. <laughs> uh, I, I think that was uh, what we called station keeping uh, uh, equipment. Uh, so when oh, you're right. in formation with other, I, but I, again, I don't remember that. Uh, so maybe they put that on after I flew it or I don't know. Uh, also these little, these little doohickeys that are kind of sticking out, uh, either side of the upper center console. I don't remember what those things are either. So, and you had your own set of throttles, yes. even though like they're only a foot apart. <laughs> it was actually a pretty wide, I know the picture doesn't look like it, but it's a very wide cockpit. And, um, I guess All Lockheed right. decided that. Yeah, instead of uh, sharing a common set of throttles, we'd put uh, a set on each side. Interesting. Um, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Anyway, uh, if you want to see the pictures that we're looking at and understand uh, this discussion, uh, please check out the show notes. Thank you, Ivan. For I noticed you had the same um, wonder light uh, the, with the bulldog clip on that used to keep coming off and falling on your head. Um, Top left. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Top left. Uh, is a is a sort of a, a light with a cable on that you could move around right, the cockpit right. onto different things. The one on the uh, F4 continually fell off and used to <laughs> you know used to land on your lap or hit you on the arm or something when it came loose. Yeah, <laughs> useless piece of kit. Yeah, well, we weren't uh, pulling the same G forces that you were you were in the F4. <laughs> oh, possibly that might have something to do with it. Yeah, <laughs> I think we call those things Grimes lights for some reason. Oh really? Yeah, uh, I'm not sure why. 
Um, all right, moving on. Uh, three. David writes in, good evening, Captains Jeff, Nick, Dana, and Dr. Steph. While I'm listening to the live tech setup of 347, I had a query or perhaps a thought. From listening, it seems that Captain Dana, as a new captain, must have low seniority and is not flying very much at all, while the older pilots like Jeff and all uh, are all bidding to fly as much as they can. This seems back to front. Surely their logic is in making the new captains work harder so that they gain precious experience. Dana is not a low-time pilot, but I understand that some newer pilots on the MD-80, MD-90 are reaching from uh, the left seat and maybe not getting much practice. The older pilots could then have a rest on occasions. I'm guessing that some of this is due to how pilots are paid, but presumably with enough will, that could be changed. (laughs) No, David, you're wrong. (laughs) I mean, no, you're right. The first part of the sentence, it is everything to do with how we're paid. And the second part, presumably with enough will, that could be changed. I'm uh, afraid that it's so entrenched in the system of uh, airlines with unions here in at least the United States that, um, you know, I don't see it changing. But yeah, it is ironic, that's for sure, that you would think that you'd want the people out there that had just converted to these new positions and didn't have much experience in them would be the ones doing the bulk of the flying and people like me who had been on it for a very long time uh, could just stay home. But um, I can't make as much money by doing I could go on reserve uh, like Dana's on and I could do very little flying, but you're only guaranteed a certain number of hours per month. And, uh, and that's it. Now, uh, when I'm flying a regular schedule, as I do, I have the ability to pick up extra time during the month and even uh, occasionally fly those trips that I call green slips, which are trips that are paid at twice the normal rate. So if you're a dude like me, and many of us are my age at my company that have children who are in college, uh, it it gets pretty expensive here. The United States doesn't provide free education and uh, you have to pay a lot of money uh, sometimes for some of these schools. And uh, so you go out there and you fly as much as you can. Anything to add? Well, I was actually hoping Nick was going to chime in and let us know about things in other countries across the pond. Yeah, how do they handle it at uh, Acme Red? Well, we get a salary. You do get an element of flying pay. But if, uh, say, you're sick, uh, then that's made up uh, for you because obviously it's not your fault you can fly. It's only really if you... Uh, for some reason, turn down flights or, you know, go on a reduced roster with your pay, and then it wasn't coming back that much. It's only, it's not a huge portion of your pay. And uh, we don't have any different uh, pay scales for different types. If you belong to my company and fly an airplane, you get paid the same as all the other pilots. Very interesting. Yeah, completely different system than what we have here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I agree with David. I think... It- makes a lot of sense. You want folks who have just come into it to be working all the time, flying all the time, ingraining those, uh, the knowledge of the systems, the knowledge of how the aircraft works, uh, you know, getting some landings under your belt. Uh, I think all of that is good experience. And to go through training and then especially, um, I know it happens at some regionals, not all of them, but depending on their staffing issues, new pilots go through their initial training and then 
don't fly for quite a long time. Yeah. Or we, very little flying. We know some people that mm -hmm. uh, are experiencing that. Yep. And when I was new on the various airplanes and new positions, even if I was very low seniority and I was on reserve, I was always putting in requests to fly whenever I could because I knew that this information that I just learned in the simulator and some of my you know early flights would be lost if it wasn't um, if you don't use it you lose it yeah exactly so as much as it's tempting to enjoy having all that time off I think it's very important that you force yourself to get out there and just do it because that way you become better at it and you become more comfortable with it Things that are skills-based require you to actually use those skills to maintain proficiency. Right. Yeah, I think Dana's probably suffering a little bit at the moment uh, because he is flying now and he hasn't flown for a little while and he's finding it a little bit difficult, uh, harder than he was when he was uh, very current. Yeah, the thing that he has going for it uh, himself is that he had, you know, had many, many, what, 11 years or more on the airplane as a first officer. Now, it's different. He's in a different role, and that's all new. But as far as the airplane is concerned and flying it and that kind of thing, you know, it's not such a critical thing. But if somebody had just upgraded to captain on the Mad Dog coming from a different airplane and had never flown this airplane before, like I did when I was displaced off the 727 and I got bumped down to the, to the Mad Dog, I'd never flown the airplane before. So... Uh, at least I had experience being a captain for a, a couple of years, uh, but I did not have experience flying the airplane. So uh, it was important for me to get out and fly it as much as I could. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, thank you, David, for your question. Uh, item four, Philip says, hey guys, I've written in once before and I'm going to try to keep this short because I know some of the feedback can be quite extensive. As I'm finishing up final year here at CSUSM, which I had to look up, it's California State University San Marcos, which is in North San Diego County. My father is trying to persuade me to finish my economics degree and pursue my passion for aviation by joining the Air Force and gaining my license that way, and later transitioning into the commercial side of aviation. Any pros, cons you could give me? Advice? Other options? Thanks. You guys so much uh, love the show. And... Uh, the Air Force, the military, as um, Captain Nick and I can profess, is an excellent way to learn how to fly. And the bonus is that uh, they pay you as they're teaching you how to fly. You're not paying anybody else. So it's a very economical way to, uh, to learn how to fly. Um, the downside, at least here in the U.S., and that's the system that I know, is that if you go into the military active duty, then after you get your wings, uh, you are you have a commitment to serve. And for me, it was six years after I got my wings. Uh, now it's, I think, 10 years after you get your wings, uh, which effectively puts you in the military for at least 11 years or more before you're able to get out and or, or separate. Um, I would highly recommend that if you're interested in getting into the Air Force, that you look into an Air National Guard unit or an Air Force Reserve unit because you'll go through the same training that the active duty people go through. But your commitment after you get your wings is much, much different. You can fly with your 
Guard unit and Air Force Reserve unit, and at the same time, you know, petition or put your applications in for the airlines and and fly uh, both at the same time. Now it can be a lot of work. You know, you're not going to have as much free time between trips if you're flying for the airlines, but you get your foot in the door, you get hired, and most of the airlines, if not all, here in the United States are seniority based. And the, the soonest that you can get hired by an airline, the better, because then your life gets much better when you start getting seniority. And then you'll have to, you know, work a weekend or two for the Guard or Air Force Reserve unit uh, to serve your commitment. But it's a it's a great way to go um, if you can if you can find a unit uh, that will will hire you and then, you know, get that pilot slot. Yeah, I have to agree. Uh, compared with uh, civilian training, Air Force training is second to none. Uh, you'll get considerably uh, more hours. You'll get to fly in um, much more exacting uh, circumstances, uh, and you will uh, learn a great deal more that might be of use to you one day uh, when you're pursuing a civil career. So I, I cannot stress that enough. The the flying you will get during your military training is fantastic. Um, and what uh, Captain Jeff says sounds brilliant because we don't have an equivalent over here. But um, uh, I still think that if you were to go into the uh, regular Air Force and serve 10 or 11 years, compared with a career that's going to last uh, 40, 45 years, that's not a huge amount. You're still going to have, you know, years and years in your major airline to uh, to build up a decent uh, pension and uh, live a, a happy and fruitful life. So uh, uh, the lovely thing about doing Air Force flying is that it's completely different to anything you'll do in the civil world. And when you're droning around flying uh, in civvy flying for your entire career, it's very much the same. It's a bit like Groundhog Day. Um, so it's real nice to um, be able to do something different and, and take that experience into the civil world, knowing that you have tested your mettle and um, done the most exciting flying that you're capable of doing. And then when you settle into uh, an airliner, you you don't feel like you've missed out on anything. So true. So true. And you know, more and more, um, I'm flying with a lot of new hires at Acme who put in a full 20 years or 22 years or whatever in the uh, active duty military. And so they served a full career and they have a full pension and they are now flying for, you know, one of the best airlines in the world and making good compensation as well. So, you know, it's, it's all about timing. Just the timing happened to work out perfectly for these guys that have uh, been hired in the last, uh, you know, four or five years and uh, yeah. may not be the same for you, you know, projected out 20 years from now or 22 years from now. But, you know, it's still a way to go. Timing is timing is everything, isn't it? But yep. I would also say to uh, Philip, remember, too, there are plenty of options and ways to get into a commercial airline career. And I would say do what is right for you and don't feel pressured by anyone else, even if it is your family. So good point. What Jeff and Captains Jeff and Nick have said is wonderful advice. I think it's good advice to take. But um, if there's some other way you're thinking of doing things, then that's not wrong either. That's true. So true. Just to kind of give you an example of uh, so when I when I learned about the Air National Guard and Air Force Reserve thing, 
was after I had already raised my hand and had been inducted into the Air Force active duty military program. And I met this guy at officer training school in San Antonio and started talking about, you know, what he was going to do and all that, you know, where he came from. And he goes, yeah, he has a pilot slot from the uh, reserve unit at Dobbins. And I said, the reserve unit was that. And so he explained it to me and I went, Ooh, that's what I want to do. <laughs> he goes, well, <laughs> hang on. Pilot yeah. Timing is everything. This is and, what he uh... said to me, basically. <laughs> because... Too late. You, yeah. You've taken the queen's shilling. <laughs> yeah. It's too late, man. You needed yeah. to do that before you, you know, got inducted into the active duty. And I went, Oh, so we went through officer training school together. We went through pilot training together he got hired by Acme Airlines in 1985. His seniority number right now is 300 something. He's been a triple seven captain for, I don't know, maybe 10 years already. Um, he's a very senior captain at Acme Airlines. My number is pretty good still, but it, I, I can't touch that airplane. Well, I can, if I go up to it, I can touch it, but I can't fly it, um, as a captain. Um, and uh, the uh, my number is seventeen hundred and something rather. So there are fourteen hundred, almost fifteen hundred mm-hmm. numbers between the two of us, uh, and that's the difference between getting hired in the fall of nineteen eighty five and the winter of nineteen eighty eight. So wow. it made a big difference. And I mean, it really sounds like a best of both worlds yeah. scenario there. So if if it's something you're interested in, if you're interested in going the military route, I you know weigh all those options, but keep all of that in the back of your mind. And as Steph just mentioned, you know, there are other ways to, there's so many different ways to get there. Uh, And uh, Patrick um, just so happened to be asking about another way. Hey guys, this is Patrick Bliss out in Eastern North Carolina. Been a a pretty recent fan of the show. I started at the beginning, but uh, (laughs) realized it was going to be about eight years before I finally caught up. So I've been listening to the new episodes, really like the new format and hearing from everybody. Um, the uh let's see here uh i have recently reignited my idea to to become an airline pilot and i'm looking at a program called uh atp flight school they've got locations all over the country and i was kind of wondering what you guys thought about it um my wife and i have recently started a gofundme campaign to um try to put together the funds to put me through school um and so i thought we i'd see what i was getting myself into and besides uh i always thought captain bliss sounded like a good thing um hope you guys are doing well appreciate the show and love the work you're doing thanks bye well captain bliss is pretty cool i have to admit but there's a guy one of our great listeners and has been for quite some time in fact he was at the very first meetup apg meetup that I ever did and his last name is cool so mm-hmm. Captain, I, cool. I Captain Cool. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I think that, brilliant. that trumps your bliss. And the other thing is, um, isn't ignorance bliss? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Sorry. Could be. Sorry, Patrick. Could Just be. kidding. Um, um, brain brain damage can be bliss. <laughs> it can be. In fact, <laughs> um, let's move back to some positive things here. So, <laughs> Eastern North Carolina. Woohoo. I'm assuming that's somewhere out Greenville way. I am familiar. Um ATP flight school. Um, I don't think any of us have any firsthand knowledge with that one in particular. Um, but for those who are listening, who are wondering what that's all about, it is a large flight school here in the U S locations all around the country. Um, I have known person, uh, flight instructors of mine who went through that program to get to 
uh, the point where they were flight instructors. Um, they all had positive things to say about it. It is a um, well-defined program, so it's not uh, the part 161 or part 61 program where you're kind of, you know, doing self-study and things like that. It's part. Um, oh my gosh, I just 141. Thank you, 141. Woo. Which happens to be a good uh, airplane too. <laughs> Uh, where you're going to have a syllabus and a curriculum and and uh, pretty much define steps along the way to get from point A to point B. Um, so if that's the kind of learning that appeals to you, that's certainly the way to go. Um, tends to cost a little bit more out of pocket than if you go through some of the ratings on your own and can do some more of the self-study. Um, but maybe on the flip side of the coin, if that's not the right type of learning for you, it could actually cost you more if you're spending more hours of your own time trying to to do the learning. So it's just things that you have to, to weigh, look into it. Um, I've not had anyone, I've not heard anyone say anything bad about the program. Um, and it's, they've, they have a lot of resources. So um, for students who are doing their cross countries and things like that, oftentimes you're with another student. So folks to go fly with, um, share some flight time and camaraderie along the way. Okay. Uh, and unfortunately Dana is not with us. I think Dana knows an instructor at, um, DeKalb Peachtree Airport. I think there's an ATP uh, facility there and has uh, talked very highly of this instructor, as have others. Uh, now, that's just that the one location. As Steph mentioned, ATP is all over the uh, country. Uh, and I've never heard anything bad said about that uh, company. Nope, just, just positive things. And um, I, I know one of my flight instructors went through that program and she had good things to say. She didn't use them to do her um, CFI. No, she, uh, what did she use them for? I forget. She did the majority of her ratings there and had a good experience. So, yeah. So I say, uh, go for it. If that's the kind of program you want to go through and get your, all your ratings really, really quickly, um, go for it. Some quick feedback from the, the chat room from folks who have done similar programs or the same program. Good for the self-motivated, uh, keep the cost down. You need to treat it like a job and do it every day. Yeah. So there you go. Thank you, John, for that. Yeah, thanks, John. Uh, and yeah, the uh, one here in Atlanta is at uh, PDK. Mm -hmm. Ours ATP is at Flight Concord. School. Oh, very close by. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, let's see. I think now is about the right time for the best part of the show. And you all know what that means. This week's Plain Tale by the Old Pilot. The old pilot's plain tales, gone for a burden. Traditionally, pilots speak a great deal of indecipherable garble, which is used to bamboozle those from the outside of our tight little community into thinking we know something they don't. Of course, sometimes that's true, but as often as not, it's just a technical shorthand for the things we do. Mind you, we didn't think up the concept. For that, you'd have to go back a few centuries to those who braved the seas, particularly in the Navy, be it the original and royal one, or one of those other outfits that came along after. Funnily enough, a lot of what we say in the cockpit goes back to those salt-soaked seamen. Indeed, the term cockpit comes from the traditional name for the location of the controls of a boat, and is a sunken area, or open well, that would keep the salt-soaked seamen out of the worst of the weather. Some might tell you that, on a ship, 
the cockpit area resembles the pit used to contain fighting cocks. Indeed, on a fighting vessel it was often blood-splattered, as it would also be the working place of the ship's surgeon. They would, however, be mistaken. In the more formal world of the Royal Navy, from whence the term originates, the cockpit was named after the area where the coxswain was stationed, and it was where the midshipmen and master's mates were berthed. A coxswain literally means boat servant, derived from the term cock or cockboat, from the word cog, meaning a small vessel, and swain, an old English term which comes from Old Norse for boy or servant. Other terms have moved into common usage at the pointy end of an aircraft, in particular flight deck, which originally referred to the landing area of an aircraft carrier, but begins to appear around the time that the Boeing 747 came into being, so perhaps we can thank those politically correct top-floor executives for removing the giggle factor when the ladies refer to the pilot's working area on a big machine. Of course, there are other naval influences in aviation, which is why we measure an aircraft speed in knots. This goes back to the days of estimating a ship's speed through the water by using a chip log, or common log. This was a wooden panel weighted to float upright in the water, to which was attached a line tied evenly with spaced knots. The number of knots placed 47 feet 3 inches apart that passed through the hand during the time it took a 30-second sandglass to empty indicated the speed in knots. The coastal facility that was used to transfer people and cargo from a dock is called a port. This is thought to come from the term for a gateway that one would pass through to get from the dock to the city, and can be traced back to the Latin portus, meaning haven or harbour, or porta, meaning gateway, which was changed into the word port, which we find in Old French, Old English and Middle English, hence its adoption by aviators by adding air to become airport. Of course, being old, I still remember when the terms port and starboard were in common use in aviation. A direct carryover from the sailing terms, the port side or left side when facing forwards, was traditionally the side of a ship that would be placed against the wharf or dock when in port. The ship would be loaded over the left boards, becoming laid board, from the Anglo-Saxon term laid, to load, giving us the modern term laden. This became the word larboard, meaning left or port side of the boat. Boats docked on the port side, usually because the steering oar was generally attached to the other side. Again, from the Anglo-Saxon, the side oar, or steerboard, literally meaning the side on which a vessel is steered, became starboard, rhyming with larboard. In the modern times of the 16th century, the confusion which arose when shouted over a strong wind and creaking timbers changed larboard into port, hence port and starboard. By the mid-1800s, the term had stuck and was in common use around the world. 
It was only after I'd been flying for some years that the modern terms of left and right gained traction. While I'm on this subject, a little historical knowledge can help even in today's modern flying, as the left side of the aircraft is the port side, left and port both have four letters, and port is coloured red, the colour of the left side navigation lights. By the way, should you ever be lucky enough to enjoy a formal dinner, when the after-dinner adult beverage is port, the decanter will traditionally be passed to the left, and continue to pass around the table so everyone gets a glass. Except when the Bishop of Norwich attended a formal meal at Christ's College, Cambridge, in 1785, because he hogged the port. Nothing was said, but when the bishop stood at his lectern the next day to preach his sermon, a note had been attached, which read, The bishop of Norwich is fond of his port, too fond for the villain won't pass when he ought. To this day, should you allow the port to linger, you might well be asked, Do you know the bishop of Norwich? Those aware of the tradition treat this as a reminder to move the decanter along, while those who don't are told, he's a terribly good chap, but he always forgets to pass the port. When Captain Jeff welcomes you aboard his mad dog, he is referring to the boarding of a vessel, when one would cross the side, known as the board. This comes from a number of sources. The Old English board with no a, the proto-Germanic word bodza, which itself comes from the old Saxon board, again with no a, and the Dutch board with two o's. There's a bit of Old Norse and Old High German in there as well, including a bit of medieval Latin or Frankish, and from thence it came over with the Normans to mingle with its native cousins. By now, it has inextricably tangled together. By the way, if you're interested in going back even further, there's a similar word in Sanskrit. Our aircraft manifest is a direct carryover from a ship's record of cargo, passengers and crew given to customs and other port officials. It comes from the Latin manus, meaning hand, and festus, meaning clear, evident, proved, clearly revealed. So it became a document or public declaration that would be handed over to reveal the contents of a ship, or in our case, aircraft. When I ring back to speak to some of my cabin crew, we'll get onto those terms soon, I'll be greeted on the interphone with a chirpy, Gallifor, Tracy here! The galleys on our flying machines began with the Greek word gallia, thence the medieval Latin gallia, into the old French word galie, all of which were used to describe a slave ship and became associated with the hot working environment of a ship's kitchen. There is little doubt that today's cabin crew would agree with the presumed origin as they often call the crew member given the task of working in the galley to cook and plate up food as the galley slave. Our cabin crew are those crew members who don't work in the cockpit, 
and their title is derived from late Middle English, itself from the Old French, crue, meaning augmentation or increase, which was the feminine past participle of croistra, grow, from the Latin crescia. There is no doubt that you'll need to forgive me for my appalling pronunciations, as there's no doubt that Old French and Latin are not my forte. The original sense of the word was a band of soldiers serving as reinforcements. Hence, by the late 16th century, it came to denote any organised armed band, or generally a company of people. To become cabin crew, our motley organised band of flight attendants have to work in the cabin. The late Latin term capana was the start of our little cabin story, which became the provincial word cabana and then into Old French cabane before morphing into the Middle English cabin we know. Traditionally, it referred to a small hut, which adequately describes something like a mad dog, but perhaps it's a little unfair to refer to the A380 as having a cabin. Shouldn't it be called the palace area instead? When used as a verb, the dictionary quotes an example of usage as the cabined and confined lives of the poor, perhaps suitable for low-cost carriers. We all know that the most important person on an aircraft is actually the chief cabin crew, or manager, or chief flight attendant, etc. They are often called the purser, which is a term also stolen from the Navy. The naval purser is a warrant officer, the origins of whom can be traced back to King Edward the Confessor in 1040. A purser would purchase his warrant from the Admiralty and would then be allowed to become a middleman between the ship and the suppliers in port. They would buy supplies on behalf of the ship, making a small profit in lieu of pay, almost acting as a private merchant. In charge of items such as food, drink, clothing, bedding, candles, the purser was originally known as the Clerk of Bursa. Of course, the captain of a ship or aircraft have their origins back in Latin with the term caput. Doesn't that sound amazingly like the German word caput, but spelt with a C and not a K, meaning broken and useless, no longer effective? I digress. From the Latin caput, meaning head, we get the late Latin Capitanus, meaning chief, followed by the Capitan, Old French, through to the Old English Captain, meaning leader. However, I feel that there are plenty out there who might feel that the Old German Caput would be better suited to some. The Captain and First Officer are also the pilots, in other words, one who steers. Our steely-eyed pilots start off life as a Greek pedon, meaning steering oar, which itself is related to pus of genitive podus for foot. From the Greek pedon, we get the medieval Greek pedotus, which refers to the rudder helmsman. The old Italian pedoto 
Italian Pilot, and then the Middle French version, Pilote, which emerged in 1510 as the one who steers the ship, finally gives us the English pilot. The one thing that all these people recorded on our manifest, looked after by the crew and piloted by the Captain Need, is a plane to fly on. That word is simple enough in its origins, starting with the Latin planum for a flat surface, the adjective of which is planus, adopted by the French as plane. It refers more to the verb, the act of moving a flat or level surface, which is lifted by water or air, and has now become the noun plane. The aeroplane, though, is similar, but comes from slightly different roots. Those of the Greek, planos, meaning wandering, and aero, meaning air. Whereas Captain Al might be accused of wandering air, it was the French who merged them into their current meaning in 1855 to give wings to a word, which means a heavier-than-air-powered flying vehicle with fixed wings. Now that we have a machine to fly, we need to be able to trim it out. The old English word trimmen or trimian meant to make firm or arrange and seems to be the origin of trim. The word's history is obscure, but the current verb seems to date from the early 16th century when its usage became frequent and served many purposes. In nautical terms, it refers to trimming the sails to make them an efficient shape, so that the tail-tails, strings of yarn on each side of the luff of the head-sail and on the leech of the main-sail, fly smoothly. If the tail-tails are flopping around, the sail is poorly trimmed. Trimming also refers to balancing the centre of gravity by positioning the cargo so that the ship lies evenly in the water. Much of this also applies to aircraft. We trim so that we don't have to continually deflect the flight controls, which is tiring and creates more drag on the aircraft, and we trim the centre of gravity by positioning cargo and on some types moving fuel around as well. There are, of course, many terms that I haven't covered that are particular to aviation that have come from earlier times, and here are just a few. A beam, azimuth, ballast, bar, although I suspect that my usage has more to do with a drinking establishment than a mass of sand. Bilge, bulk cargo, cabotage, centerline, chock, combing, compass, course, crab, dead ahead, fin, great circle, leg, bearing, the old man, pier, pitch, plot, propeller, first officer, sponson, stow, touch and go, waypoint, yaw, and on my aircraft at least, three sheets to the wind. Finally, to go for a Burton. There are several explanations for the origin of this informal British phrase. None of them have been proved to be the definitive etymology, although it's agreed that the phrase can be traced back to the RAF slang of World War II. It means to be killed when referring to an aviator, or to be ruined or destroyed when referring about a person or thing. 
He went for a Burton over France last year. My laptop's gone for a Burton. But what exactly is a Burton? And why did going for one gain these meanings? Let's look at the two main theories, both of which demonstrate the black humour often needed to deal with the fact that World War II aviators were highly likely to be killed in action. The English town of Burton-upon-Trent, from whence the long-suffering Mrs. Old Pilot hails, is known for its brewing industry, and a Burton came to refer to a type of ale. When an aviator crashed into the sea, otherwise known as the drink, the idea was that the person had gone for a pint of beer. There was a famous firm of tailors called Montague Burton. If an airman went for a Burton, he'd died and gone to be fitted for a wooden suit, referring, of course, to his coffin. But I guess we'll never know for sure. I just love that kind of stuff. We're all all word nerds here, right? (laughs) I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, thank you for doing that. That's. uh, I'm sure you could have done another, you know, 45 minutes, couple of hours. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you could just keep going on and on and on. Yeah, I uh, you didn't me- you know, you did mention three sheets to the wind. I'm not sure why you applied it with. Uh, is that the way you fly the airplane? Uh? <laughs> uh, but you know, I was I learned many many years ago. Uh, it was one of those books about words and where you know the origins etymology of the word, and uh, it was a as you say a, a sailing. Um, um, trying to think of the word, but. Uh, uh, that uh, if the sheets, I guess, are in the wind, that means they're not tied down, so they're not helping. And I guess the sheets are the sails that steer the boat. Yeah, so, if, if you uh, had one of those big uh, three masters and you wanted to sit dead in the water, you needed to release at least three sheets so uh, and let three sets of sails flap around and go into wind, and then you'd stop. So uh, well, I, I when heard, you, I, I'm sorry. Um, yeah. I'd heard yeah. that uh, it would make the boat kind of just like wander and and like you yeah, know, it swirl. Well, yeah, the, just yeah. Be, either the boat would wander or the sails the would flap or... around, all of which resembled a drunken sailor. Yes, <laughs> love that. Three sheets, three sheets to the wind. Interesting. I didn't uh, know that much about the uh, cockpit um, origin. I knew it was the coxswain, uh, but uh, uh, some other good stuff you threw in there as well. Wow. Yeah. Well, most people seem to think it refers to you know uh, fighting cocks. Mm-hmm. Which is just an assumption. There's, there's no basis behind that. Mm-hmm. But yeah. uh, no, the coxswain is the naval version, and we get most of our terms from the Navy. So uh, there you go. Where'd you get all that information? That is so awesome. Oh, it's a, it's a, if you pick around the internet, it's amazing how many people have put a lot of effort into yeah. uh, discovering that. And there's some great uh, etymology uh, sites where you can find out all about insects. <laughs> yes. one of my favorites is the uh, etymology dictionary uh, that's that's one of the ones i like to go to i can get yeah. lost in that stuff it's just a black hole on the internet you know you get yeah. sucked into it for hours and hours oh absolutely yeah we've got a book in our toilet uh one of those classic toilet books and you should take it out of the uh, toilet it's going to get wet yeah probably probably should <laughs> it's called um white elephants and red herrings and it's all about the uh, the basis of a lot of those phrases uh, and so many of them have come from the navy it's quite remarkable hmm. 
Very cool. Thank you for doing that. That was a that was a great one. Anyway. I mean, they're all great. But uh, anyway. Okay. Well, I think that we shall move on then. Um, kind of sticking with that same thing that we were talking about earlier regarding flight training, whether it be military or uh, accelerated training from like the ATP style 141 school. Uh, Daniel has a question. Uh, he says, Hey, APG crew. My name is Daniel S. I live in Colorado and train out of Rocky mountain regional airport, which is Kilo Bravo, Juliet, Charlie. I'm currently a private pilot, uh, with a check ride scheduled for the 18th of December. I also have a question for you guys. My intentions are to work for the airlines, which licenses and ratings should I take? And in what order? I'm definitely not planning to be an instructor for my lack of ability to teach. Oh, must be hard to get along with. <laughs> um, <laughs> how would I build time and what sorts of jobs can I get with a commercial license with minimal hours? Thanks, clear skies and tailwinds for all. Uh, Steph, I think maybe you'd be the best uh, to yeah, answer this. I mean, I think there's some logical order and progression with ratings. Um, the way I did mine and, you know, there are other ways to do it, but private pilot instrument commercial multi-engine um seaplane was thrown in there too but that's certainly just that was the for fun one yeah um <clears throat> i think most people do it in a similar order mixing up sometimes the commercial versus instrument versus multi-engine component just based on what your goals are um you know what type of job can you get um if you don't want to be an instructor well that's a good question and there are actually plenty of jobs out there um you know common ones that don't require quite as many hours or hours in more complex aircraft include things like being a survey pilot. Frequently they fly Cessna 172s or 206s. Things that are a little less um, complex from an insurance uh, hours requirement. Um, you can be a, uh, uh, you can fly skydivers, you can do pipeline patrol, you can do, oh my gosh, there's kind of endless things that are commercial in nature, but don't inv involve flying passengers from point A to point B. Banner towing. Banner towing, um, agricultural type stuff. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm missing a bunch there. I'm sure. I think you already I said mentioned that, didn't you? Yeah. yeah, you know, um, aerial photography type stuff, uh, sightseeing tours, sometimes fall into that category H because herding, they're not herding cattle. <laughs> I guess that's an interesting use for maybe in Australia. Well, they, yeah, in Australia, yeah, yeah they yeah. use that crop for herding cattle. I've heard of using yeah. helicopters, but not um, not airplanes. That's interesting. Sure. Oh, well, I, I'm guessing they use airplanes. I've seen them use helicopters mainly. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Huh. You know, um, someone okay. does bring up the good point that the reason a lot of people do their instrument before their commercial is because those hours then count towards the minimum required for the commercial as well. Oh. Um, so that's a logical step there. And any good flight school can guide you along with that as well. If you're thinking of going through multiple ratings and not just stopping at your private pilot certificate, if you're going to work towards an airline pilot career. I was trying to think of what you know, uh, how practical it would be to go from private to commercial without the instrument because it's not because a lot of jobs are going to want you to have that instrument rating. Yeah. So. yeah. It seems like the order that Steph mentioned is the lot, the normal thing that I hear. Yeah. That's what, that's what most people do. That's what I've seen in yeah. most cases. I can think of a couple people who've done it out of order, but it was more just because, um, they didn't have specific career goals or they had a specific thing they wanted to do that did not require the instrument. Um, uh, certificate. Um, I know one person in particular who just wanted to be a uh, pilot on the weekends for a skydiving operation who did not get his instrument 
certificate. Um, just didn't want to have to go through the hassle of the, the knowledge test and everything else. But I will say, in my personal opinion, I think that's the most important rating that you can do. Um, there's a lot of good safety information there. It will make you a much safer pilot if you have your instrument rating, no matter what you do. Excellent. I see Michael Cochran in the uh, in the chat room. I'm glad he's here because we have some feedback from him. It's going to be interesting. No, I was going to say that instrument rating is uh, is really so important. Uh, mm -hmm. It's one of the highest uh, causes of GA accidents in America is uh, uh, people who get themselves into poor weather and with no way of knowing uh, how to get out of it and how to fix right. it, the problem. And, and, and disorientation is a real thing if you're not trained to fly, oh, um, absolutely. relying yeah. on your instruments. Yeah. I mean, I get disoriented every flight, actually. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's what your first office is for. Well, yeah, they have to keep leading you to the front end, do they? <laughs> yeah, no, sir. The no. Turn left. To the first back of the airplane <laughs> again. Got to sit here and have a drink. <laughs> can't tell you how many times I hear, I have the airplane again. <laughs> Flight ferrying, aircraft ferrying. That's another uh, another good one. Thank you, Will. Like I said, I knew I was missing a couple in there. But yeah, there, there's plenty of, of different job opportunities. There are many ways to get to your um, minimum hour requirements for your um, ATP, your airline transport uh, requirements, before you can take that testing and certification. So uh, it's really down to your imagination and what you want to do and what your priorities are. Um, so fruitly. Plenty of good information out there on uh, different pilot forums, pilot groups, even on like Facebook or uh, things like that in terms of um, people who are looking for jobs, have similar questions, are offering jobs, uh, looking for pilots. So don't be afraid to dig into some of those resources on the internet these days. And we have a lot of resources that listen to the show. Uh, I know personally, um, um, two, three survey pilots and uh, now a regional airline pilot who built up his hours flying survey airplanes. Mm -hmm. So... Um, it can be done. It oh yeah, absolutely. You don't have to be a teacher, an instructor. No, Not every and again, everyone. No two people are going to take the same path because everyone has different passions, different goals, um, different abilities and aptitudes. That is so true. I'm with you, Daniel. I I don't really ever want to be a flight instructor. <laughs> <laughs> no patience, I, huh? Well, I, yeah. I mean, it's just more the. I, I want to do it for the knowledge portion of it for myself, yeah. um, but I don't really have any burning desire to teach primary flight How students. How many that times like do I have to terrible, tell you not to do that? <laughs> a terrible job for me. <laughs> I could probably do, you know, instrument teaching. And, oh, you know what? And, I think you'd be a good instructor, actually. Yeah, but it has more to do with the, the drive and the want to do it. Yeah, true. So I understand. Hey, you know what? I think it's time for... This week's installment of The Adventures of Ivor and Tarquin. Dear doctors and captains, as you may be aware, I'm midway through a tour of the west side of your little old country. America has many things to recommend it. Friendly people, warm Californian weather, too warm sadly at the moment, a variety of deep fried foods overtaking, overtaking on both sides of the person driving down the middle of the highway. But its biggest plus point is that I won't run into that toffee-nosed twit Tarquin. Hurrah. First of all, I'll make a confession. We flew here in a Boeing, some sort of modernish version of a 707, but with fewer engines. Not inspiring, but nonetheless, it managed to chug its way across the pond. I must not be too harsh on it. It had wings, wheels, 
and restrooms, the whole nine yards. Well done, Boeing. Next, I must critique your airport and arrivals procedures. Well, bugger me springs to mind. You have these fancy auto machines that read your passport, check your fingerprints, and then offer a full optical checkup, and they work. Previously, this all had to be done with the help of one of those human things. I'm... I'd assumed that the machines were installed to get rid of those pesky, expensive employees, but no, none of it. After queuing like we were at Disneyland for a faintly disappointing ride, the machine printed out a receipt, and what do we do with that? Get in another line to see a human. A bit of stamping and uncomfortable eye contact, and we're off. A huge success. One long line turned into two long lines. Still, we are safely in the USA. Next step, get to the airport hotel. Mrs. Ivor, the lovely Kirsty, I believe, said, sod it to waiting for the free shuttle bus. Let's get a cab. So we did. It took us to the wrong hotel, took our $19, and drove off swiftly. It did begin with the same letter, but it was a very different word after the first letter. I guess he's comparing it to the word sod that was used earlier in this paragraph. After this, things perked up. We got to the hotel with the right name. It had a view of aircraft on approach to LAX, and we slept well. That was day one. But never fear. Luckily for you, less detail is required for the next days. We've been to Monterey, San Jose, and LA. Very nice they are indeed. But now we're in that concrete and neon hellhole, Las Vegas, just to watch a hockey game, then out to civilization again. Anywho, as the great Homer Simpson once said, we will press on with this great American adventure. We've learned many things, such as traffic lights are just advisory. Uh, the same with speed limits. Freeway entrances can be hidden out of sight of normal people. Food should be deep fried if possible. Chips are crisps. And rocket is a, regu a regula. It takes all sorts. So now that I'm older and wiser, I should that be older and more tired, I'll wish you farewell and thank you for putting up with me in your country and as you suffer nick on a regular basis on reflection it should be poor old america chocolate biscuits and marshmallows ivor thank you ivor now i've never heard of rocket what is rocket it's arugula uh, but i've never heard arugula referred to as rocket i'm pretty sure i've seen it wow i mean i'm sure you have uh, obviously ivor saw it just like, mm, I think, yeah, that. if, if yeah. you want to buy it in this country, you'll need to ask for some rocket. <laughs> I would never ask for a rocket because I'd think they would think I was out of my I mind. And why I would remember to, why do I, I want to go? Where's the arugula? Why or why I, does your arugula have this strange name affixed to it? That's really weird. Maybe, maybe it's just me. <laughs> and then I'd, I'd never, remember. Oh yeah. That's okay. what it's called. Here. Well, you, you, you would like calling things differently over there just to be different. Oh, no, I mean, your peppers are all have strange names. I know we, you know, the, yeah. the, the crisps thing and the potato chips and your chips are actually potato chunks and Fries our chips are crisps and who knows. Yeah, I know. It's all so confusing. Courgette Why? for zucchini and aubergine for aubergine. eggplant. Mm -hmm. That is the aubergine is aubergine. the official color. Well, it's not aubergine, it's aubergine. Aubergine, aubergine. sorry. Aubergine. Whatever. <laughs> I know this because our official company color that they put on everything yeah. is aubergine. Are you wearing an oh, really? aubergine shirt? This is not aubergine. Oh. This is pink. Okay. <laughs> I actually got rid of my aubergine uh, fleece because mostly because it was old. And this year I managed to get one that was not aubergine, but black. Much more flattering. Yes, Liz. Yeah. Auburn-bergine for Jeff. 
you know, Auburn. <laughs> or uh, I guess Nick would call Their it Their colors Auburn. are nowhere. Auburn. Would I? Yeah. You I, you're putting words in my mouth. I am. Gosh darn it, I'm going to put words in your mouth, whether you like yeah, it or not. You're, you're in charge <laughs> of the edit, so I have no say in this yeah. matter. Whether you want it or not, it's going to happen. Linguistic uh, episode, apparently. <laughs> Absolutely. <sighs> okay. Well, I think that was a f- mostly positive critique of the yeah. United States. I, and I think I pretty much agree with everything he's yeah, I do, too. <laughs> and and sadly, <laughs> uh, particularly with the uh, problems he had in the airport, it's no different getting back into the UK. I mean, when he comes home, he's going to have exactly the same problems. Now, you know what? I, I was listening to a show. A uh, guy comes on, I think it's called um, Johnny Jet. And he always recommends um, uh, an application, a website, that kind of thing. And one of the applications he recommended was Mobile Passport. And so mm-hmm. I downloaded it. And I, I don't fly internationally very often. Um, but the couple of times that I've used this Mobile Passport app, it has really made a difference. I've skipped the long line. Maybe it's the first long line. And, uh, and it ended up uh, going through a separate line and then just getting to the actual really, you know, real human person much mm-hmm. faster than if I had stayed in that first long line. So that's it's something to look into. It's comparable to global entry in a lot of cases. Yeah, and, term, and it's free. In terms of the speed that you get through. And it is free. Uh, free. You just have to fill it out. You fill it out. Um, Within four hours, I think, of. Of getting to the yeah. airport. Correct. Yeah. I'm not sure if it works for, you know, like if you're British, if it goes the other direction or not. I don't know if it's only for U.S. citizens. Probably just going but, into the U.S. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. But I thought it was so cool. It's, it's free, and it actually is, it helps. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And I think it's uh, sponsored by the government, which is even more amazing. Mm-hmm. Although it's definitely very much like the government to split one long line yeah. into two long <laughs> That's lines. That's true. And much. call it more efficient. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good chuckle at that one. Thank yeah. you, Ivor. Yes, thank you, Ivor. Very, very good. And did you like his new theme music? I did. That was <laughs> perfect. I mean, you know. Is it also Tarquin's theme music? Yes, it's both of them. Okay, it's good. the adventures of Ivor and Tarquin. Until Love I it. can come up with something better. <laughs> no, it's perfect. Keep it. All right. Uh, Reagan sent us some audio feedback, and let's hear what he has to say. Hello, Captain Jeff and the APG crew. This is Regan from Northern California, city of Chico, California. I've been a listener since the mid-hundreds and really enjoy the show. Uh, Thanks for all the work that you put into making that every week. My feedback today is about a book I just finished, which I found on the APG library, entitled 35 Miles from Shore. For those of you that haven't read the book, it's about a DC-9 that ditched in the water off of St. Croix in 1970. 23 people lost their lives and 40 survived. One thing that I really enjoyed about this book was it is written with enough detail for pilots to follow along with the decisions that were made on this DC-9 and see how after a bunch of miscalculations and mistakes, all it took was a faulty fuel gauge to break the camel's back and they had to ditch. Captain Jeff, you all often talk of the Swiss cheese model and how it takes a series of problems and poor decisions to line up for an accident to happen. Well, this book illustrated very clearly, I thought, what the holes in the Swiss cheese were this day and how they all just started lining up one after another, pointing right to a ditching uh, that happened here. 
As I was reading this book, a question came to mind that I'm hoping you can answer. Ultimately, the DC-9 on this crash uh, ditched due to fuel starvation. The pilots had previously tried three approaches at their primary destination of St. Martin uh, before de- deciding to divert. And while, ha- while they had uh, been watching their fuel gauges during their landing attempts, it was during the diversion to their alternate that it was noticed that the fuel totalizer was malfunctioning. By this time, however, there just wasn't enough fuel in their tanks to get them to their alternate. My question for you today is how do you ensure that your fuel instrumentation is in fact giving you correct data and what is your confidence in your fuel instrumentation? In GA, my instructors have always taught me to plan off of a timer and uh, use the gauge as a backup, which is kind of funny because during uh, my IFR training, all I'm told to do is trust the instruments. But I'm also flying with one engine and a needle for a fuel gauge. So I guess the question comes down to, after you've made two go-arounds in crummy weather, what fuel data are you relying on to know whether you can make a third try, like ALM 980 did, or if you need to head to your alternate? Thanks for a great show, and Kavu to you. Well, thank you. I heard crickets in the background, I think. I know. I thought you were playing the crickets. I wasn't. Okay. He was playing his own crickets. It wasn't me, Reagan. <laughs> I didn't do it. He must have been outside or something. Very Natural cool. crickets. Yeah. What do you know? Real crickets uh, in Chico, California. Chico is a, a wonderful place. Wouldn't you agree? I, yeah. I would agree, as <laughs> would my beer, yeah. Ultra Venice from Sierra Nevada. Sierra Nevada. Chico, California, and Mills River, North Carolina. There we go. Um. So... Uh, thank you for the feedback, Reagan. Um, I have read, uh, it's a wonderful book, and we've talked about it on the show before, um, by Emilio Corsetti III, and it's called 35 Miles from Shore. I hi- highly recommend it. And if it's not in the APG library, Tiffany, we need to put that in there. It is. He said he got it from the library. Oh, never mind. Oh, <laughs> That's shoot. where he found it. Okay, yeah. never mind then. <laughs> so proof that people are using the APG library. I love thank it. You. I love it. Tiffany. Um, and uh, yeah, so the Swiss cheese model. I'm gonna have to get like a model of. And it looks like Swiss need cheese. Some Swiss cheese, yeah. <laughs> With a mouse stuck through it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, somebody has one of those. Send it to me. Um, just kidding. The uh, question that he had for me was uh, the or us uh, the fuel gauges and are we to trust them and how do we know that what we're looking at on our gauges is actually accurate. And I can tell you what we do at uh, Acme on my airplane and all the airplanes that I've flown is that we, you know, we have individual gauges for the individual tanks. And then we have something called a totalizer, which totals up all the separate tanks in, in the airplane that I fly. It's pretty simple. We just have a left wing, right wing and center tank, which is the same setup, I believe as the uh, DC nine had in this, uh, this uh, incident, this accident, uh, the ALM flight 980. And what we do is we know we have a flight plan that uh, tells us what kind of fuel we should have at certain points in our flight plan. And then we compare it with what we actually have when we cross that point. If it's different, especially if it's less or a lot less, then we start looking into other ways to verify what kind of fuel 
state we have at the time. We also have some gauges that uh, monitor how much fuel is used. So if we know what we had to begin with and then we subtract what these gauges are telling us as far as the fuel used, then we can come up with a rough idea of what the fuel should be. Um, and, uh, you know, you made a good point. It's kind of ironic that, you know, you trust your instruments because when you're talking about your flight instruments, you definitely need to trust your instruments. When it comes to fuel gauges, I'm not sure if they have the same high standard of accuracy. <laughs> but uh, the, the gauges that we have on all the airplanes I've flown uh, for commercial airlines have always been very accurate. I'll say in, in GA aircraft, when you just have the little needle gauge without any additional um, supplements to help you figure out uh, your actual totals, it is accurate when the tanks are empty and it reads zero. So is that actually a real fact? I mean, I I've heard that so many, heard so many people. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I'm just repeating it at this point. Yeah. I've I, taken it as gospel and I've moved on. But I've heard that too. It and makes good sense. Yeah. I think that, I think that might be true. Uh, I have in fact flown one GA aircraft where... Oh, I forget which tank it was. It was a low-wing Piper product, so you had to switch tanks as you're flying along because it doesn't uh, drain from overhead. Um, ooh, pull my head out of my ear there. Uh -oh, um, don't pull your ear off. No, no, it's okay. It's all good. It's reattached. Um, and, it, you know, you have to change your, your switch your fuel tanks there so that you use fuel evenly from, from both sides throughout the course of your flight um, and don't run out of fuel all the way on one side before you realize you have to switch over to the other tank. Um, and there was a fuel gauge that did not read correctly um, for a long time during the end of the flight, a disconcerting amount of time. It was basically reading empty, and we knew for certain it was not on empty from previous flights, from previous history with the aircraft. So it was not very accurate. Mm. And there we were using more of a time-based uh, method to determine our fuel remaining. Right, and you know if you know what the the flow rate is, how many gallons per hour the engine normally burns. I mean, it gives you an, a pretty good approximation. Yeah. Of, we were certain we were not leaking fuel, causing it to uh, yeah. drain more quickly than usual. The number one piece of advice I can give to you, though, if you're flying GA, is always physically check the yes. fuel level in your wing tanks because... Well, yeah. If you can see into the fuel tank, look at it there. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of times you can see it, was it when it comes up to they have little tabs installed so you can know how much fuel is in there if you fill it up to the tabs versus filling it all the way. Um, if it's a high wing aircraft, um, you know, you can get up on a step stool or yep. sometimes you can climb up on the aircraft, unscrew that cap, look in, you know, if it's filled to the top, you'll be able to see it. If it's not, you can use a, a measuring stick or other device to see where it's at. And I've said this so many times before, you know, when I was um, a teenager, I was a uh, line boy or a lineman. And I, uh, one of my jobs was at John Wayne Airport before it got to be a big commercial air, airport. It was a very, very busy uh, GA airport. And uh, one of my jobs was to go out and pretty much spend the day fueling airplanes. And a lot of times I'd be putting fuel in airplanes and watching people come out, you know, drive up, park, get into the airplane. And, never check it. And never check the fuel oh and just and go. And I'm thinking, that is not smart. Not That's smart at all. Um, make sure that cap's on, too, if nothing else. Yeah. Good grief. If someone else fueled your aircraft. Even if you fueled it, go back and double check that it's right. on. Especially if I fueled it, you definitely make sure that those caps <laughs> are on properly. <sighs> anyway. Now, here's interesting. Because yeah. when I started flying our aircraft, they were fairly new. And um, the detection system for measuring the fuel 
in the uh, tanks on the aircraft was not particularly accurate. And um, it took them some years to uh, start producing um, a fuel gauging system that didn't have uh, a fair amount of errors in. So what we used to do was uh, do a physical check of the fuel in the tanks. Now, an aircraft like the uh, A340, um, where the wings are you know, a long way above your head, very hard, but uh, every tank it, on the Airbus, and the same with your aircraft, Jeff, but they have built-in um, uh, dipsticks. Yeah. And yeah. They're, they're attached to, they're magnetic, they're attached to a float, and uh, when you uh, pull them down, they hang just below the wing and they indicate the contents of the tanks. And they did a physical check of these. Uh, even though it wasn't hugely accurate, it used to give you a confidence check. And we would always, at every fuel check, uh, we would do two fuel calculations, one based on uh, the fuel that was indicated in the tanks uh, against our uh, fuel we expected now to consume for us for the rest of the flight, and the other based on the fuel we had used. So we would compare those two, and um, we would always take the most pessimistic as being the actual fuel, even though, of course, as the fuel tanks get lower, uh, there the fuel contents is usually indicated more accurately compared with the fuel used, which the longer the flight, eventually errors creep into that those fuel used counters. Um, after ten or twelve hours, you know they, they're just measuring the fuel going through. They're bound to build up an error that grows towards the end of the flight. And even though, of course, uh, it only took them a short while to sort out those problems. And the fuel gauging has been excellent ever since. Um, even now, still, we still do double fuel checks, both on fuel used and fuel indicated on every fuel check. Which is uh, very prudent. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you check those little dipstick things um, when you're in flight, though? That's the that's the tricky part. I know, you need a very powerful torch to peer <laughs> out the window. Okay. No, it's actually one of the walk-around checks to make sure they've uh, all been pushed back in again. So that's one of the alternative fueling methods that we have. If we have a fuel gauge that's inoperative, uh, one of the things that the fueler can do is do those those sticks. And uh, and then there's in the nose wheel well, uh, you have to open the nose wheel well doors and you get in there and there's like a plumb bob that you use and a, a, uh, like a chart uh, that you see what kind of, because it, it depends on if the airplane's not on on a perfectly flat Playing. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, you have Take to take account of yeah. Uh, you have to make adjustments to the uh, what you see on the stick, mm-hmm. and yeah, uh, we we have to fire up the inertials, and when everything's aligned, we can use data from those. Okay, to uh, indicate the aircraft level. Now the the trick with the uh, if they're st- sticking it and using that little plumb bob thing, you know, we have to make sure that we do like an extra exterior inspection to make sure that those nose wheel doors are actually in the closed position because if they leave them open and we go taxiing off and take off and we put the gear handle up guess what they're not gonna close nope. and it's very noisy <laughs> yeah. and not good another gotcha yeah embarrassing slightly yeah, a little embarrassing yeah. embarrassing jennifer says her her car's fuel gauge is a stick yeah her little she has MG a, she a has. very old car <laughs> it's a lovely old car it is beautiful it's car. a classic fighter pilot's car jen you should you know, you should sell it to a fighter pilot like uh, me. 
Absolutely. Margie or Pip. I think Pip might be interested in it. Pip's interested in stealing it. Yes. I'm not so yeah, sure about purchasing I'm it. I'm willing to pay, pay good money for it. I'd go with uh, Captain Anderson's offer yeah. as opposed to <laughs> Pip's. All right. Uh, let's see. So thanks, um, Reagan, for the question and, uh, and the promotion of the APG library. Yeah. Great. The librarian, our wonderful Tiffany. Um, I'm going to skip to item 16 because that gentleman, Michael Cochran is in the chat room and he sent us some audio feedback. So let's take a listen. Howdy APG crew. I just want some clarification on the discussion of operating VFR and some of the required equipment that was discussed on episode 347. Captain Dane implied, at least the way I took it, that to legally operate VFR, one has to have VFR charts on board. We don't, and that's and that's what I'm I'm saying is that you know for to be able to navigate legally as a VFR student, you would have to have a sectional chart or a WAC chart or or a, a terminal chart um, to be able to navigate, and we don't have that ability. I'm not sure what a student has to do with it. I'll assume that he misspoke when he said student. I am sure we are all familiar with the acronym ARO, A-R-R-O-W, which stands for Airworthiness Certificate, Registration, Radio Station License for International Flights, Operating Handbook, and Weight and Balance, which are the required documents needed to be aboard the aircraft. And we all know that we need to carry our pilot's license, photo ID, and medical certificate. And to operate an aircraft VFR, the required equipment is an airspeed indicator, altimeter, tachometer, oil pressure gauge, oil temperature gauge, fuel gauge, anti-collision light, seatbelt, and ELT. I do not know of, and I cannot find a regulation that requires VFR charts to be aboard the aircraft when operating VFR. I'm not saying that it is prudent, but I cannot find a regulation requiring it outside 901.503 subsection A, which has to do with large and turbojet-powered aircraft. Am I wrong on this? And if so, can you provide a specific FAR that requires VFR charts to be aboard the aircraft when operating VFR? Thanks, and keep up the great work. Well, I had a um, communication with Dana regarding your feedback, Michael, and he said, you're wrong. No, actually, he didn't say that. He said that you're you're right, and what he meant to say was that it would be a very prudent thing to have the sectionals available to you if you're navigating VFR, but it's not an actual absolute requirement to have them. So he apologizes if he gave that impression, but uh, that was a good uh, reminder of all the uh, actual requirements, and uh, I guess for... For VFR flying, there aren't a heck of a lot of requirements, are there, Steph? Not a whole lot. I think, um, so I was just looking as well to double check on that. Uh-huh. But under FAR 91.503, there's a reference to having prudent aeronautical charts, or pertinent, excuse me, pertinent aeronautical charts available. But actually, that's a subpart of large and turbine-powered multi-engine airplanes and uh-huh. fractional ownership. So, um yeah, something large, something burning jet A, something over 12,500 pounds. 
pertinent aeronautical charts are part of the FARs. But if you're out there and you're 172, you don't no, really have you to. Don't. You don't have to have charts. Yeah. Probably not a good idea. No. But I mean, you, you don't have to have a radio doing, either, right? <laughs> you don't have to have a radio. Nope. I mean, there are some places where you have to have it, but you, you, there are plenty of places out there in the U.S. that you can fly around without a radio. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. it a very you smart thing to do? The Michelin Guide. What? Oh, yeah. The Michelin Guide. That should be in there, right? Yeah. Absolutely. That's required. <laughs> uh, you know what? Thank you, Mike, by the way, for uh, sending that in. And, um, oh, and Mike says he chatted with uh, Dana, too, and he provided a great link, an AOPA.org publications link. So we'll, if I remember, I'll put that in the show notes. I probably won't that remember. That might be the same one that I'm looking at right now from okay. AOPA. But Michael also um, sent us some other audio feedback, um, more recent than that one I just played. And... I don't really know how to describe this, except that I just need to, re- I, need, I need to play this. And HR, please keep a keen ear on this one. Whoa, 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 whoa. I take umbrage with your safety assessment of the lovely flying machine, the helicopter. You know, that, that thing stops rotating. You're going nothing but straight down. And with an airplane, at least you can glide. I have a chance to glide someplace. I don't care about the auto rotation or anything. You know, at the very least, you're going to be three inches shorter when you hit with auto rotation. So um, I, I, I'm not a fan of helicopters. Never have been and never will be. Now, an air, airplane, that when you take your hands and feet off the controls, just goes, becomes uncontrollable. It has no natural stability at all. Uh, terrifies me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I agree with you, Nick. The helicopter is a perfectly safe aircraft when flown properly and all the emergency procedures are complied with. In fact, I believe it's safer than a plane. Aside from a catastrophic failure, such as losing the Jesus nut, the nut that holds the rotor system to the hub, or flinging the blade off, if that happens, then you're just done, like a wing, if a wing falls off a plane. Why is it safer, you ask? Because if a helicopter loses an engine or has a tail rotor failure, you can just auto-rotate to the ground. And no, Dana, you'll not be three inches shorter if done properly. I have done probably 100 or so my past career during recurrent training, and I'm still five foot ten, just like I started many years ago. And the aircraft came, with, came out without a scratch every single time. I may be a little bit heavier now, but that is definitely not due to autos. Now, auto rotations, I just need a teeny tiny piece of open land to put the helicopter down on. Say 200 feet if I'm having a bad day. And when I'm touched down, I'm only going 5 to 10 knots. If you're over a dense forest, no problem. Just come over to the top of the trees, bring your airspeed to zero, and let the branches catch you on the way down. Yeah, the helicopter's going to be trashed, but the landing will be survivable. Now compare that to your big old plane, Captain Nick. You need, as President Trump would say, That's right. You're going to need a huge piece of concrete to land on. That's for you, your old curmudgeon. And if the force is the, your only option, you're just going to wipe out the whole thing, and it's going to be ugly. You're landing at what? 130, 140 knots compared to a helicopter at 5 to 10 knots? Oh, and the more modern helicopters have a stability augmentation system where you can let go of the controls, and it'll stay upright. 
kind of like the roll mode control on your autopilot on the airplane. All EMS helicopters that I flew were outfitted with that nice piece of kit. A lot of the helicopter accidents are due to CFIT, and that is due to pilots making stupid decisions, pushing weather, and ending up in a burnt IMC. And that's a lot less forgiving in a helicopter as compared to a plane, especially those without stability augmentation system. So in the end, if I had to make an unscheduled landing, especially at an unimproved area, I personally would rather do it in a helicopter than in a plane. So, Michael, I'd like to thank you again for these great Yeti mugs that you uh, gave all the crew members. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They're very nice. Mine's in my mug yeah. store. So, uh... <laughs> Sounds like there's a little bit of a debate here. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's get that first thing out of the way. Stability. I said natural stability. You need a computer to make your airplane stable, and that's from a bloke who actually flies an airplane that is full of computers, then yeah, you've got a problem. Uh, but turn all my computers off and the airplane's not going to fall out the sky. It'll fly. <laughs> well, unless you're I'm in just, an I'm Embraer 190. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, possibly. Um, uh, he has a point. Uh, you can auto-rotate a helicopter into a small uh, patch, uh, you know, a cabbage patch or something, which is probably where it belongs. But only if you start off at a sufficient height. And if you're flying a helicopter, what's the point of bumbling around at, you know, at a decent <laughs> height? You want to be flying around, you know, nap of the earth stuff. Otherwise, get yourself a decent flying machine. And if you're starting <laughs> off at less than 1,500 feet or so, you've got no uh, height to uh, get the rotors powered up or spinning at a sufficient uh, speed to cushion that landing, in which case you will be three inches shorter or perhaps more. Uh, HR. I'm going to remain neutral. <laughs> and say that both camps have valid points. And you'll note that it in that little audio excerpt, you didn't hear my voice saying anything bad about it. I wasn't dissing the helicopters. I did not diss the helicopters. I think no. I made. Um, I was able to come up with a term for the collective when someone was. Yeah, that's true. To you did. Yes. Remember what that was called? I think I got that correct. <laughs> Mike did not write into. Correct me on that one. Yeah, Michael so is a helicopter correct. pilot. He was a law enforcement helicopter pilot uh, at one point, and now he's doing EMS, which is an amazing thing. I mean, that the job that those guys yeah, do that is, is amazing. Marvelous. Yeah, uh, so we do. But you didn't mention how goddamn noisy they are, too. <laughs> they I are mean, noisy. for heaven's sake. I mean, they vibrate. They're noisy. They're uncomfortable. All right, it's time for Jeez. us to move on to the next item in our <laughs> feedback. <laughs> Thank you, Mike, for the lovely feedback. We always appreciate it. Great mugs. Thank you very much. The corrections and uh, nicer than the helicopters. Yeah, we're gonna we'll 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 send we'll send Nick's back for appreciation of the. (laughs) We're gonna reprimand the uh, you know the uh, offending crew members uh, you know behind the scenes. I like it way too much. Okay. Um, I know we're getting close to the end here, but uh, I would like to play this one from Wayne, uh, nine. Hi, APG community. Um, Actually, this is a message for Jeff. Uh, Jeff, I was just curious. First of all, my name is Wayne Barter, longtime listener um, since about the mid 200s. Love love the show, love the podcast. Um, I 
did want to take a moment to tell you uh, how I got turned on to you guys. Um, and it was from my uh, first podcast that I listened to was uh, by a guy named um, Joe Deon, and he was a Acme uh, captain. Um, his podcast took him through from his right seat, moved to the left, and he's he he did a lot of great podcasts that I uh, really you know got hooked for. Uh, the, the aviation community, uh, you know, I travel for work on planes every week. So it was just, it was really nice to be able to listen to his podcast while in flight, um, busying up that time and for my long drive. Um, and then he just kind of fell off the map. I'm not sure what happened, uh, why he stopped recording. I know he's done pieces with NPR. Um, he's just, uh, it was a super, cool introduction to the podcast community. Um, and anyways, while in my search and and my failed search to find him to see what he was still doing today, um, it's when I got hooked up with you guys, uh, you know, searching generically for airline podcasts and, and came across and I haven't looked back since, but, um, I just got to thinking, you know, boy, wouldn't it be cool if you actually knew Joe and, you know, maybe have him on the show. He was such a great, um, storyteller. Um, he has a great voice. Um, you know, I think, you know, he, he had started to make a move from the, um, audio side of things, podcasting and, and move to video. And, and, and I, I know he had a couple episodes on YouTube, you know, so I'm thinking maybe he was trying to monetize, um, his efforts to, to keep him going and, and maybe that, never, you know, came to be or came to fruition, but with your guys, you know, popularity and the community that you guys have built, if you are ever in the search for, you know, a great talented podcaster to add as a, you know, guest guest or another co-host of the show, you know, I personally would vote that you reach out and have a conversation with Joe just to see if he could compliment your already awesome um, team. Um, just a suggestion. I'm not looking for this to get played on, on the podcast or anything, but it, it's something I wanted to share with you. Um, huge fan of the show. Love what you guys do. I can't wait, you know, every week until the next episode's out. Um, keep up the great show. Um, and just wanted to pass along that uh, question to see if maybe uh, yourself and Joe had ever crossed paths. I don't think he flew the MD series, so I'm, I'm not sure that you would have, but, uh, you know, you never know. It is a small aviation community and um, just let me know what you think. Um, thanks so much. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Wayne. And your feedback is perfectly timed because we're going to have a couple vacancies here soon uh, on the APG crew. So maybe <laughs> Joe Dion would be uh, the guy to go for, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no comment from you, Captain Nick? Uh, am I being relieved of my... <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> just put out to pasture, that's all. <laughs> no, so I I love Joe Dion. Well, not real. I mean, he's a great guy. Well, I don't know him personally. So to answer the first part of the question, no, I've never crossed paths with Joe. But I did listen to and subscribe to his podcast, and I loved it. And it was very... It, it it really dealt a lot more with um, things like related to 
stuff having happening in the cabin of the airplane and layovers and that kind of stuff. It wasn't as operationally oriented as our show is, but I still loved it. And uh, he had a, a the perfect NPR style. And uh, as you mentioned, he was uh, um, also a um, what do you call it? A, a guest uh, host on a lot of NPR shows when it came uh, something to do with aviation and that kind of thing. In fact, the the uh, last or the only thing that I was able to find after you sent me this feedback, Wayne, because I, I went in to see if I could still find some of his episodes, uh, was um, his appearance uh, on an interview by the Amateur Traveler, I believe. I'll try to remember to get that link in the show notes uh, so you can listen to uh, Joe. But this was back many, many, many years ago. And as you said, he started to get in a little, he started doing some live shows and video, a couple of them. And then all of a sudden he just, he was off the map. And I don't know, I, I, I was wondering at the time whether it had something to do with the fact, because he did not hide who he flew for, his real airline. Now, you know, I always use the fictional airline Acme, but, you know, you all know, if you do a search, there is no Acme airline. That's a virtual airline. Um, but, and he would be a lot of times using or doing uh, interviews while he was on the, in the cockpit, in flight, uh, recording things. And I, I always thought, mm, you know, he's kind of really hanging it out there, I think. And I don't know if that has anything to do with it. Um, if, if somebody from the company said, hey, um, you know, sorry, you can't do this anymore. You're breaking too many rules whatever. I don't know. Uh, or maybe he just got tired of doing the show because it is a lot of work. I can tell you as all of us here, our, our hosts can tell you it is a big commitment and it's a lot of work. And, uh, he, uh, did the, the uh, podcast called fly with me. It, and it's kind of, a, a an aside here, it's kind of frustrating sometimes when you go to iTunes and you look at the aviation podcast and you see, um, the, uh, uh, the listing of like, you know, new and noteworthy, and then what's hot and that kind of thing. And so many times you see Jody owns fly with me podcast, but his last podcast was in 2010. So almost nine, almost years, nine ago. years. Yeah. Yeah. And so I looked to see where he was on Twitter and his last tweet he made was in November of 2011. And hmm. I know that he, uh, he, uh, I would listen to the show when, um, you know, Wayne was talking about the fact that he moved from left seat to right seat. He went to the, uh, 757, I believe flying out of LAX. That's probably why I don't know him or have never run into him because he's based in Los Angeles. And, uh, now I think he, uh, I know this for sure because I have a way of, uh, finding out this information, uh, through my company, um, connections. He flies, he's a 737 captain based in Los Angeles. Now, uh, Liz is telling me through our private communications channel that I should look at something. Yes, Micah that, said that he had some contact with, um, oh. that podcaster and that he was, he overwhelmed in the end, perhaps. Is he was overwhelmed. Way. Yeah. Yeah. Overwhelmed. And, uh, sounds like burnt out a little bit from doing, yeah, it. I can see that Got too it, intense. it's, <laughs> it's easy to be overwhelmed and get burnt out as a podcaster. Um, especially if you're doing a, a show like we do every single week and you have like a real, a regular life and a work life and everything else. It's a, it's a lot of work, uh, but we keep doing it because we love getting together. You know, we're good friends. And it's to, to me, it's like getting together with friends every week to talk about mostly aviation stuff, but 
you know, we talk about other stuff as well. And then, of mm-hmm. course, we extend that into our real lives and get to do these meetups and everything else. And, and uh, that's just so amazing. We have such a great community. Uh, There's been a good balance, I would say. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, but again, I loved Joe Dion's uh, Fly With Me podcast. I never tried when I started podcasting. I never intended to do a show that was the same kind of show that Joe did because I think his kind of stood alone. It was like nobody could really do what he was doing. And, uh, but, uh, and, and I was hoping to be able to give you a link to listen to all of his shows. Unfortunately, I cannot find any active links. I mean, all the links that I can find, you click on them and it says it's a dead link. So can you, you can't still e- listen on iTunes? No. Really? It's not available. It's on iTunes. And if you go to the but listing not available to listen and you to click on it, nothing happens. Interesting. So one of the important things as podcasters is to kind of control, own your, your uh, audio files and then go with a company that is a reputable company like the one that we use, Liberated Syndication, Libsyn. Uh, and uh, you'll know that they're always going to be there, even if you're not doing the show anymore. So 10 years from now, if we stop doing the show, you know, the, these files are still going to be there as long as Liberated Syndication is going to be there. And I think they will be. So We'll live forever on the Internet. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of sad, actually, because um, I loved what he was doing. I don't. Did you any of you ever hear Joe? Uh, I think his show? a long time ago, no. I listened to a couple of his episodes, but I don't recall details. Nope, never, never heard of him. He was really, really good. And you can get an idea of his voice and his style by listening to the Amateur Traveler uh, show, episode 75 or 72 or something like that. I'll, again, I'll try to get the uh, link to that particular. Um, that wasn't his podcast. It was a separate podcast. Uh, but, um, it, um, I'm, I'm hoping that he is, uh, enjoying life and, you know, doing what he wants to do. And, um, Hey Joe, I don't, I doubt that he's listening to our show, but if you are, um, contact me feedback at airline pilot guy or Jeff at airline pilot guy.com and, uh, we'll have you on. And then you can tell us what's been going on with you. There we go. I think that's going to be it. I know we're over three hours again. Uh, we do, um, appreciate your, uh, pardon when it comes to these long shows, uh, but we always try to do as much as we can in our limited amount of time that we have here every week to do this. And uh, all the ones that we weren't able to get to on this show, we'll move to the next. And uh, let's see, Nick, again, you want to remind us of the uh, meetup uh, you have scheduled in Berlin for the end of the month? Absolutely. It's at uh, the Circus Brewery, which uh, is in Berlin. And, um, uh, Tillman, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, I guess, part of the hotel that uh, he runs there, the Circus Hotel and the Circus Hostel. I think it's probably in the uh, hostel. Uh, am I right? Uh, it Steph? is. If you go into the main entrance of the hostel, it's actually downstairs to the left of uh, the reception. And the hostels are a different place to the They're hotel? They're across the street from each other. The hotel's on... Um, I think it's the south side. I don't know. Well, the, the hotel's on one side of the street. The hostel's on the other side of the street. Are they just like really rude at that place? Oh, very hostile. Oh, oh hostile. hostile. Okay. Just, just so, never spent any time in hostels, apparently, yeah, as a yeah. young traveler. So that's on the 27th, uh, Tuesday, the 27th of this month. And uh, probably be kicking off around 7 o'clock, but basically the evening of. That'll be nice. Looking forward to it. And my lady wife will be there. Oh, awesome. She's a wonderful person. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I've noticed in the video, what did you say? 
<laughs> I heard that. Move on. And so I see this. Uh, if watching the video here, I'm 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 seeing in the frame. Nick has has cleverly put a display of the time, the local yes. time, where he is, <laughs> to make me feel really bad that it's one o'clock in the morning right now. Yeah, just turn one a.m. Fifteen November. So, thanks for doing that for us, Nick. You're, you're a great guy. We're going to keep you, man. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, we're actually not going to let you retire, at least not from yeah. the show. Yeah, you may retire from flying airplanes, but you're not going to retire from doing podcasts. Contractually, uh, contractually, you have to stay with us forever. Yes. Oh, damn. Uh, we'll call it the pay increase. Well, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll talk. We'll, we'll double it. <laughs> we'll double it. Triple it. Triple it again? Yeah. <laughs> Must be like the 20th very time we've doubled yeah, your pay. Very it's a very lucrative business to be in, that's for sure. Hey, uh, if you want to learn more about the show, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com. And if you want to uh, download the app for your smart device, your smartphone or tablet, you can find an application, Airline Pilot Guy, on both the iOS and Android platforms, uh, ad-free and free. And we're also on social media we are check us out on twitter at apg crew is the handle you can use to find us in the community our individual twitter information is pinned to the top of that page you can also head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy and interact with the community there find information about meetups sometimes uh, articles that the community members are interested in and want to share with others and feel free to post there and share information as well we're also on Slack. We have a Slack team there uh, hosted by Hillel, and he's going to tell us about how you can join us there. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at Slack at airlinepilotguy.com that's s-l-a-c-k sierra lima alpha charlie kilo at airlinepilotguy.com or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at hillel and i'll send you an invitation that's hillel spelled h-i-1-1-e-1 hotel india one one echo one and see you in slack thanks hillel now go back to the bathroom and until we meet again, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Good night, Pop. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day.